if somebody asks you what what do you do for a living or what what how do you make your living your livelihood what what do you tell them i tell them i make a living by having fun <laughs> which is not true <laughs> <laughs> you know people think it's fun to be in the outdoor world but it's a lot of work so actually i have two jobs you know i have Denman Engineering, I own an engineering company, and uh, which I'm selling to some of my employees now, but I still own the majority of it. And uh, I have Mojo, and so I split my time between uh, two full-time jobs, you know. So half my time I spend uh, uh, doing Denman Engineering, half my time I spend doing Mojo, half my time I spend farming, and the other half my time I spend hunting. <laughs> so you're out of time by the end of it. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> when, when you were... You grew born and raised in the state of Louisiana, and you did you go to college in Louisiana? I went to Louisiana Tech. I was born in the very northeast corner of Louisiana, about 15 miles from the Mississippi River. So I was in the Mississippi River uh, bottoms, uh, hardwood bottoms, which is super-duper hunting habitat. So I grew up in a real rural area where you could walk out the back door and go hunt and just keep walking, you know. So I've been hunting since as long as I can remember. And as far as your days at Law Tech, there's some pretty pretty strong Louisiana celebrity that's come out of there besides yourself. Um, did you go to school with Bradshaw? Or is that where Bradshaw went to college? Was that Law Tech, him and Phil? Bradshaw went to Louisiana Tech. He did. So did Phil Robinson, you know, the Duck Dynasty star, you know. Mm-hmm. So we, we all went there, but they were noted, and I wasn't, I'll tell you uh, that. <laughs> well, I'd say at that time Bradshaw was noted a little bit. One of the most famous sayings in duck hunting was probably when Phil said that with duck, you know, Duckman one video with Coco, he said something like Bradshaw went for the bucks and I went for the ducks and it's, but he, you know, they both played football there and you, you still have ties with duck commander. I mean, you guys live in the same town, right? Yeah. They're from West Monroe and I'm from Monroe. It's just river separates us, but I don't know those guys uh, real well. We actually do some uh, product uh, work with them. The Rippler that we brought out about a year or two ago, well, we bought the first one out two years ago in the butt up this year. That's a, a Duck Commander endorsed product. So we're, we have an arrangement with them where we will make a number of uh, Duck Commander endorsed products as we go forward. And is is it still the where they can't walk outside anymore, or is that fa- is that craze kind of gone away? Because at one time they had a museum or a or like a destination where people were flying in from all over the world, weren't they, when, when Duck Dynasty was hot? That is correct. And they had a restaurant, Duck Dynasty restaurant, and they had um, uh, this and that and the other all around there. But it's not as hot as it was, but uh, they still get a lot of guests uh, come by their warehouse there in West Monroe, and they have a, uh, some type of tour-type circuit. If you get there at the right time, they'll let you tour the facility. You know, My best, um, Phil Robinson, Terry Bradshaw, and I didn't know Terry Bradshaw now, but I, no, Phil Robinson, pretty pretty good. I saw him on national TV one time. At that time, Terry Bradshaw had gone bald, and he didn't have any front teeth. And uh, Phil Robinson asked him, said, what happened to you? And he said, well, you know, says 300-pound lineman chased me for a living and says, make your hair fall out. They catch you and knock your teeth out. <laughs> <laughs> That's no joke. And, I mean, as far as, like, the personality that somebody that I think I would want to hang out with Bradshaw just seems like the coolest cat. That new show that he's on, I can't think of it right now on TV, but it's him and, and, and Captain Kirk and all these guys that go around and, and they're in their, you know, they're in their sixties and seventies. And I think one of them's even in their young eight, you know, young eighties and they just have a blast. And he's kind of like the ringleader of it. And I, I can imagine being in the huddle with him or it, it just seems like he would be a coolest cat to hang out with. Well, you know, Robinson, uh, Phil and uh, Terry, 
I don't know near as much about Terry as I do about Phil, but, you know, you're a great uh, host, TV host, uh, anything like that, if what you're trying to do on TV or on entertainment is who you really are, you know, if you're not having to pretend in any kind of way. And uh, I know that's true for Phil Robinson, and I'm pretty sure it's true for Terry Bradshaw. Yeah, I mean, I've heard stories of Phil, like, where he would be booked for speaking engagements or, um, you know, whether it was at a church or a sporting goods store back when duck commander duck calls were selling all over. And these particular stories I heard were in the state of California where he would show up with no shoes on. There was like sometimes where people would, he'd open the car door and he'd get out with no shoes on. And I don't know if it's true or not, but I know what you're saying, Terry, because he lives that life that he portrayed on TV. And I meant the, the catching the fish and cutting the heads off and killing squirrels and eating them and gator hunting and killing ducks every day and living off the land. I mean, no, I, I think that he's one guy that, you, you know, money might change you a little bit, but I don't think it could change Phil too much with, he might hunt a little bit better places now or have some more ground to hunt, but I bet you still dresses the same and sits in the same chair. Phil's just Phil, no matter where you go and how much money he's got. A guy told me one time on that barefoot deal that Phil took him hunting one morning this big old break before daylight, and Phil said, well, you wade down this way and I'll wade the other way and we'll meet back here at, at some time. And so later that morning, he the, the guy was telling me the story. <laughs> looks up and he sees Phil waiting toward him coming down to buy you and this guy's leaning up against a big floating log you know which is pretty prevalent down in our part of the world and he said Phil got up on that log he said it was cold he said Phil got up on that log and he out waiting out the thing and he was barefoot and uh, I didn't know whether to believe that story or not so I asked Phil about that one time and he said yeah he said God told me not to wear shoes not to wear boots uh, waders or you know hip boots or anything and he was in the he was a commercial fisherman you know he Phil was actually a school teacher when he got out of college and then he eventually moved over to West Monroe and he was a commercial fisherman uh trying to make a living doing that while he's getting his duck call business going you know and he said yeah God told me not to wear them and he said for I think he said he hunted for four years barefoot for four years snakes you've been out in our country well, I, I ain't even dealing with a cotton mouth I've seen cotton mouths on your videos that are I mean, I, to, I was teal hunting with you last September, and all I could think about was cottonmouths climbing in the blind with us. And I know that y'all have opened your blind door and had gators in there <laughs> and cottonmouths. And it, it, I, you bring that up, and you laugh about it, and a lot of people from your neck of the woods do. But I remember I was with in Arkansas. I went for a jog with Tom, and we were at, down at a duck club during the summer months. It was one of during Max Prairie Wings Fall Fest, mm. and we ran past two of them. And we're just like, you know, I don't know how aggressive they are, but I've heard stories like I think one of them bit Phil's sister at one time and she had to get her leg amputated or something happened to that instance. But are they as dangerous as people say they are? And living down there, is it a worry? Are people worried about them? Well, it's it's a little bit unusual, Chad. <clears throat> There's lots of uh, cotton mouse and other kinds of snakes there, too. We have lots of snakes of all kinds. But, you know, cotton mouse is one that garners all the attention because it, it can be aggressive. Generally speaking, if if you don't, if, if they don't feel threatened in any kind of way, they'll just swim away, you know. But if you make them mad or, you know, uh, uh, anything like that, they will attack you. You know, we used to sit out in a boat and throw uh, fishing baits uh, at, at one swimming in the water. And if you make him mad enough, he'll come get in that boat with you, you know. And so if you – I actually got struck by a cottonmouth one time myself and um, uh, hung up in my tennis shoe. Fortunately, he didn't get through. I had a big, thick, athletic sock on under my tennis shoe and – he didn't get through to both of them, but I almost stepped on him. He was on the other side of the log. So if they feel threatened, you know, they're they're probably the most aggressive snake in the United States. The most 
Aggressive? Aggressive, yes. So they will attack. They will, yes. Hmm. And However, you know, you check statistics, you know, millions of people living down there, millions of snakes down there. No one's getting bit that often, and rarely does anyone ever die anymore from a cottonmouth bite. Now, I remember when I was down there, you know, leading up to the teal hunt last September 2017, you were sending some texts with some duck reports and, you know, kind of the, the food plots or the, 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 the moist soil units that the birds were using. And then it came up that there wasn't that as many snakes on the farm this year as there as there been in the past. And there was a reason why. It was something to do. A local down there had told somebody, I don't know if it was you or Marty telling me, but when when numbers of another animal are up, snakes are down or what what do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And there's two theories about why we haven't had as many cottonmouths in the last uh, couple of years as we had Previous to that, one of them with this crazy weather we have, and when it rains in the months, it's supposed to be dry, and it's dry in the months, it's supposed to be rain, and the Mississippi River gets up, and it will flood all that uh, backwater part of that country, and it's flooded us late in the year the last two years, and the guy that oversees our our uh, farm, he lives right there next to us, he's been living in that country his whole life, and he says he thinks that flooding has something to do with it. Now, we've always had a lot of hogs because that was uh, free-range country, if you knew what that was. People, most of the property belonged to big timber companies, 100,000, 200,000 acres, 300,000 acres, something like that. And, and years ago, maybe up to the 50s or something like that, they let people free-range uh, animals on their land, and they free-range mostly uh, hogs and cows. And when they stopped that in the 60s, people could get the cows off, but they couldn't get the hogs out. So we had a jump start on the rest of the world on wild hogs. There's a lot of hogs there. Hogs love to eat snakes, so I'm sure that they've taken care of a big part of the snake problem for us. So being a native of Louisiana and with this hog craze going on, meaning that they've become overrun in several areas, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, got you know, there's helicopter shooting. There's all kinds of, of hog hunting that goes on in our country now, California even. But would you rather have snakes on your farm or hogs? Snakes. You'd rather have the cottonmouth? Sure. Cottonmouth's not destroying the uh, environment. Snakes are literally, in, I'm, I'm sorry, hogs are literally in destroying the environment. They just destructive to the land because they root up everything. They root up everything, you know. And and on our farm, you've been there. You've hunted with us. You know, we have about uh, 1,500 acres in that block, and about 550 acres of it's a shallow water reservoir that we manage just for ducks. Uh, and we hold the water on it until. About late June, we'll take it off in about a month from now. Well, when we take that water off, then all the rest of the land around us is dried, and hogs rather root in the mud, soft ground, you know, so they will just literally take our farm over, our duck field part of our farm over, uh, uh, as soon as we get that water off and they can get in there, and they're very destructive. Have you ever heard that same analogy with snow geese? Am I thinking about that right, Mr. Terry, about are, are snow geese different than a Canada goose as like a Canada goose would be more like a, a cow where he's going to be a grazer or in a snow goose is a, a rooter, a de-rooter to where he'll like just tear up the vegetation so bad that he can destroy a field or am I off on that? Have you ever heard anything on that? Yes, I have. And uh, uh, the story that you tell is the story that's told. I don't know if it's true or not, but the big concern, especially like 10 or 15 years ago was that the snow goose population had become uh, so large that they were destroying their breeding grounds way up north, Arctic Circle and stuff like that. And and the vegetation that they ate up there, they was pulling it out of the ground, pulling the roots out of the ground. So 
Uh, I don't know that uh, uh, that a Canada goose wouldn't do that, but they certainly weren't wasn't doing it to the extent that these snow geese are. So you know that's when they uh, uh, opened up the snow geese, uh, brought on the conservation order where you let you kill a lot of them because the fact of the matter is there's just too many snow geese, you know. And I've heard that uh, I've heard from biologists, uh, I've heard them say that you know like if the snow goose destroyed their habitat up there they they own about a 25 year cycle meaning it would take 25 years for them to uh, rebound from from the loss that would occur if they if they decimated their breeding grounds so the the question that comes to mind is is there ever going to be a controllable factor that we can do as a human being or a hunting population or the conservation agencies or ducks unlimited or Anybody that had, you know, they've, they've started the spring depredation season, what they call the quote unquote conservation seasons, where I think every state that offers that season, which is most states now is a no limit, where I think Iowa was the last one to go from a 20 bird limit to no limit, no plug in your gun. Um, you can use extended magazines. Is there any, are we even putting a dent in the snow goose? And I'm off track here a little bit, but you, I, I just wanted to kind of get your thought on that because you're known to me as far as, as far as I'm concerned you're a duck guy and a predator guy, maybe a little bit of a turkey guy, a mule deer guy on the side, but I think that your main passions are ducks and coyotes. That's what I've got through our friendship. I just kind of wanted to get your feeling of the snow goose, and are we even really making a mark on them? Well, I can't really tell you. I don't know the answer to that. It's a very interesting question. We ought to find the answer to that, but you know, one reason it makes it very hard to determine is the fact that the the change in weather has uh, changed the snow goose, snow goose's migration pattern so much. And it used to be, you know, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of snow geese come to Louisiana. And, of course, the snow goose capital of the world was down South Texas, Eagle Lake, and, you know, uh, that part of the world. Snow geese don't even hardly come down there anymore. So they're moving so much that it, uh, uh, it's probably kind of hard to tell unless, you know, you were one of these biologists or somebody that's working on snow geese from one end of their migration pattern to the other, but it does bring up an interesting point. And that point would be that sport hunting does not hurt uh, species of game. You know, if you take normal regulatory measures that we take, then, you know, we're not hurting the uh, uh, any of the species, the ducks, the geese, the deer, the you know, anything else. And that's why they had to loosen up this conservation order for us to have any impact upon them at all when we need to take the species you know, species out. So that's a heck of a point for sport hunting in general. It doesn't answer your question about the about the snow geese, but uh, you know, it, it's a good it's a good indicator that sport hunting does not hurt population of uh, of the hunted species. It brings up other questions that I have, and you know, you're the guy that I would turn to to ask because in your career, you haven't just been an engineer, educated at the college level, engineer, made a, an awesome living in the engineering world as an entrepreneur, running a a strong business in Louisiana and then, you know, starting arguably one of the most innovative and game changing, you know, hunting cultures and brands and, and at least duck hunting history, not to say predator, turkey, dove, everything else that Mojo has been a part of, but you've also sat on the board of directors. You've sat on the fish and game committees for the state of Louisiana. You've been in meetings. Um, you've been part of setting guidelines and setting seasons and setting limits when those limits are set and when you talk about, let's say the Mississippi flyway and your daily bag limit can have two hen mallards in it or one hen mallard, or I know it's two out West and in Arkansas, you can kill four mallards. I believe two of them, which can be a hen, but maybe just one of them. You can correct me if I'm wrong. If a hunter went out every day 
and didn't really concentrate on just greenheads, but he he stayed legal with his hen limit in the possession limit, and the daily limit. Will that biologically affect the makeup or the breeding or the duck population up and down the flyway for the future years? Uh, I, I don't really think so, uh, Chad. And of course, that's a complicated question. It doesn't have a simple answer, but uh, you know, sport hunting just doesn't affect the, uh, the, the, the population dynamics of ducks. I've got a letter from the Assistant Secretary of U.S. Fish and Wildlife that says that back in the controversial days of mojos, you know, when you know states were considering whether they should use them or should not, we we somebody asked asked for opinion. This guy wrote it says. We don't have any problem with using these spinning wing decoys because hunting does not affect the population dynamics of it. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a couple more factors that fit into that. Uh, at that time, the, you know, the average take by the average hunter in the United States was 2.2 ducks a, a hunt day, you know, where the limit would be probably six, you know. So uh, you're not going to save, uh, you, you're not save any uh, of the species uh, except by saving the days because they're not killing a limit anyway. Then why, why is a brand like you have come under fire when in, in, in states like Arkansas right now in the WMAs and the, the wildlife management areas or the public areas to say like the Biometa, why can't a duck hunter use a mojo in the public areas of Arkansas? And I know that it's in other states too, where you can't use them in certain parts of states or states out West until a certain date. Um, duck clubs, private duck clubs have set the tone sometimes where say, you can't use them at all. You can't use them until this date. Why is it when, is it really affect the duck that much? Or do, are people just uneducated on, on, because we're shooting guns that are way high powered. We're shooting ammo that's scientifically proven to be way deadlier than any ammo in the past. Everything that we do, do evolves. So we evolve, you make a machine that can have a, a, an effect and make a guy successful and have more confidence in and out of the field. Why does it come under fire? Well, that's, a, that's another very complicated question that does not have a simple answer, but this is what I believe after about 18 years of, of monitoring that situation very closely. Of course, when spinning wing decoys first came out, which is about 98 or 99, they got to the Mississippi Flyway and the lower Mississippi Flyway in 99, you know, they, they, they would have a more dramatic effect upon ducks at that time before ducks kind of got ducks kind of got used to them and i have a theory about all that too but you know at that time people started saying well maybe they're not sporting but as you say look at all the things that have changed over the years uh you know clothes you can stay out there much longer waiters like you guys made much more comfortable keep you dry you stay out there longer transportation when i first started hunting when i was a kid you could get to where you could walk or wade as far as we get we didn't have any machine to get us off the road you know so now you can get in a motorized vehicle and go just about anywhere you want to go in the world back in the worst swamp and everything so there's all kinds of devices that have helped people become more successful now i'm not saying that this is a reason that that's happening but i do know that one of the influences on it is a basically a have and have not question you know the guys that have real good hunting you know they're if you got the money to acquire a real good duck hunting place you will be successful whether you have mojos or whether you don't you just got the ducks there. You don't have ducks imprint on a very, very specific area. I'm not talking about a half a mile, a quarter mile. I'm talking about on a very specific area. And if you, some guys, you know, you got to go out and hunt on public land, it gets much tougher for you. Well, spinning wing decoys helped the guys that didn't have the best hunting in the world uh, much more than it did the guys that did. 
because it allows someone to uh, be successful where maybe before they would not be successful. Now, in the near 20 years they've been out, you know, their effect upon ducks is uh, obviously not what it was in the beginning, and we wouldn't want it to be. You know, if these animals don't catch on to what brings danger to them, they will become extinct. And uh, and we we certainly don't want that to happen. It's a very useful tool in hunting, and I can't really tell you why people are against it. I know you mentioned a while ago I was on the Wildlife and Fisheries Commission and uh, uh, for the state of Louisiana for six years. I've served as chairman two years. Uh, vice chairman is two years, and we had a group of bow hunters that would come to us. Uh, uh, they were real active uh, coming to the meetings. They lived in the area where the meetings were held. And, uh, and they didn't want to advance the, the art of bow hunting any. And my philosophy at that time was, my philosophy today is still the same. The, popul- the hunting population in the United States is down to 5%. We sell about 15 million hunting licenses a year. Last count, there was something like 325 million people in the United States. You figure that out, that's a little less than 5%. So, you know, we're getting to be an extreme minority. So my philosophy when I was on the commission was, hey, guys, let's let them hunt by any method that we can determine is ethical and moral. We can make it legal if it's not a federally controlled uh, a species like a duck, a goose, you know, they're federally controlled, so we can't change that a whole lot. But for deer and, you know, squirrels, all kinds of species like that, you know, if it's if it's moral and ethical, let's make it legal. I wanted to bring crossbows and things like that, and 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 we did get it done over time. It, you know, it's there now. But those guys that came, and this is my point, you know, they wanted to limit archery hunting to the equipment that they were using, and I was adamantly opposed to that, and I finally prevailed upon that, and I call that to close the gate when I get in theory, you know, because that th- they would use the word traditional. But what they were using wasn't traditional. They were using compound bows and mechanical broadheads and silencers and all that stuff. Anything traditional about about that? It just you, you got to do it my way or the highway, you know. And so uh, a good bit of that's caught up in the spinning wing decoy thing, you know. If it made it better, if it made it easier, some way they picked out that one product because it probably had a more uh, a visual effect than any of these others did. But there was all kind of things that come along that made it easier and more successful. So it's just kind of, if it's not my way, it's not the right way. There's no bio. I've never had a biologist tell me there's any biological reason to use them or not use them. And I never have either. And that's, you brought up the, 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 the point in the fact that is very important to myself or anybody in this industry or anybody that has a lot of passion for the outdoors, bringing up the next generation, getting new people introduced to the sport, the lifestyle of the American hunter kids, boys, girls, your nephews, your nieces, your spouses, women, um, the, the numbers speak for themselves. There's, there's a lot more deer hunters in the country than there are turkey hunters. There's more turkey hunters in the country than there are waterfowl hunters. Um, I think sometimes you hear 1.7 million duck stamps. You hear 2.1 million duck hunters. It's somewhere let's, you know, to be fair, let's just say it's 2 million. Well, if you start taking away the opportunity to have success and not everybody's going to be the best duck hunter with the hone skills that can go out and scout and understand ripples on the water and motion on the water and the chocolate milk effect and sunshine against cloudy days and the wind at your back and the cold temperatures and what it does to the, to the barometric, the barometric pressure and what the pressure does to a duck's ears and makes him feed or not feed or be active or be nocturnal. All of that stuff goes into having experience. Well, the experience comes with confidence. I think if you have confidence and you experience success, you're more apt to go again. So my point in saying that is that 
you go up to somewhere like North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, to where they have, you know, the, the duck season opens a lot earlier than it does in places like you're from in Louisiana or Arkansas or Mississippi. A lot of their stuff is done in dry fields. The dry corn, you know, revolution or evolution in America, the ethanol prices, the, 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 the price of ethanol and fuel driving that price of corn up. A lot of farmers went to corn. Um, it's it's affected a lot of the flyways, in my opinion, of the migration and ducks leaving certain areas and going to the places where they traditionally would end up. But without a mojo in a dry field, a lot of people say, I've heard people that have awesome hunts in dry fields, whether it's peas in Alberta and Saskatchewan or corn in North Dakota. Well, the fields are so big and so vast that you got to have that spinning wing to bring get their attention and bring them over. And I get that. I understand that. Because, you know, that's your theory that the mojo is made to get a duck's attention and bring him into where you can let the rest of your arsenal go to work. But I disagree in a way because I've seen it to where they land on top of those mojos and they you I've had it to where if you don't have a mojo in those fields or your battery dies, you don't kill ducks. So if those guys have the the ability to see that power and that 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 mon you know that monumental moment of those mallards backpedaling at 50 yard or 50 feet over the decoy spread because of the mojo they might only get one or two hunts a year mr terry they're not they don't get their that season could be done in a heartbeat up there that's what they're living for so why take that away from them and then i understand that is it educating ducks or is it really just a tool that if you're still a good duck hunter and they're in the woods in arkansas you're going to kill them you can't beat them out of the woods once they get in there from what I've seen and from what people have told me, if they're there, you could hunt that hole every day and you're still going to kill them. So it's just, it's weird to me that you want to take away something that has evolved the sport, gets more people excited to go and helps people have confidence. Well, uh, yeah, their, their opinion, certainly Chad, as you say, does not help promote, uh, uh, duck hunting. And that's something we really need to do. You know, the 5% of the population that buy, uh, buys a hunting license every year, you know, you say there's, uh, you know, 1.5 to 2 million is the figures that we all see as to how many uh, duck stamps we bought was, was sold every year. A lot of people buy them or collected them, too, so those people are not necessarily going hunting. But let's just say by round numbers, we got uh, uh, a million and a half. You down to a half of a percent of the population of the United States going duck hunting. And to, you know, take the, uh, the children, the young people, the women, people like that, that we're trying desperately to get into our sport so our sport maintains, you know, because there's a lot of anti-hunters out there, you know, so we don't keep our hunters, uh, we don't keep our numbers up, then, you know, pretty soon the antis will put us out of the hunting business, and that would be a, a total waste, you know, because you can take a child, whether he grew up in a real rural area, whether he grew up in the uh, in, in a big metropolitan area, and you take him out there and let him experience that, they experienced something that they didn't even know existed up to then. Well, if you take a small child, a young boy, young man even, you know, duck hunting's not easy. You know, you a duck hunter. You know, you're up uh, hours before daylight. You're out there in the cold. It might be raining. It might be snowing. It might be freezing. You're putting out all these decoys. Your hands are froze. You know, it's just a bad deal. Well, without success, that child, that young person, that person in general is not going to stick with that sport. You know, they'd be foolish to do so. So, you know, I'm proud to say that mojos have helped people um, uh, to be successful in hunting. And I thought that's what we would all supposed to be doing. And, and not just, not just, you know, that it's gotten people success. It's, it's gotten people hooked. Like when, when somebody experiences ducks over the decoys and I don't care how they get there, I'm not talking about going out and poaching or market hunting or doing anything like you said is unethical or not morally correct. 
if you if if you can do it within the means of the law, it's a decoy. I mean, if you really want to get down to the nuts and bolts of it, we are we have the most anatomically correct carvings ever in the in the history of America for for hunting. We have bows that shoot 400 to 420 feet a second, just, you know, a regular traditional bow, not a compound, you know, not, I'm not talking about a long bow, but a regular traditional bow is shooting 400 feet a second. We're in fabricated tree stands that guys have welded together and you can climb up in a tree and shoot down at a deer. We are, we have the most advanced form of, we're shooting pigs out of helicopters. So, and I understand they're considered a nuisance. Ducks aren't a nuisance. I understand that part of it, but to me, when it's almost funny, it's almost like if you are, if like sometimes you get shamed if you eat at McDonald's because McDonald's has this, this whole, this whole aura about it. Like, Oh, that's where, you know, overweight people eat, or that's the most unhealthy. Don't feed your kid McDonald's. We went to McDonald's when we were kids. We got to play on the rides. We got a happy meal once in a while. Right. <laughs> but it's almost like if you hunt over Mojo, these traditionalists are these, like, you know, the guys that, that are against them, they look at you like you're the enemy. And it's, it's like you, you're a weaker form of the duck hunting population or the duck hunting species because you choose to use a spinning wing. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Unless you're literally going to dress up in bare feet and an oil skin cloth around your waist and go out there and hunt them like with no advancement at all. I don't understand it. I just don't get it. We we have the power right now to shoot a duck at 80 yards and kill him dead. There's turkeys dying consistently right now at 80 yards with the ammo, the choke tubes, the patterning, the engineering behind it. So why not make a decoy that gets them closer to a harvestable rate to where you cut down on those cripples and you up your success rate for a clean, safe shot that harvests them quick and dead? And that's what I've seen mojos do. I'm not saying that you don't have to work at being a good hunter with a mojo too. There's different ways and different applications for a mojo that you've done a very good job with your crew of teaching people. And I want to go into some of that today. I just wanted to really touch on it. The fact that we are literally cutting, you know, what do you cut your nose off to save your face or whatever that saying is? That's really what we're doing. I, I really think that we need to get grips on it, that there's really no problem with shooting ducks over a spinning wing decoy. Uh, you can be a traditionalist, but don't look down on people or try to get them outlawed just because you don't believe in them. Absolutely. And and I look at it like this, Chad, you know, for those of us that's hunted for many years, we've all had a few occasions. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen often enough to be on the absolute X. I mean, that's where the ducks want to go. And it's a, it, it's, it's a feeling like you don't get, in many types of hunting, you know, I've hunted big game all over the world. I've been to Africa six times. I've done all these things. But, you know, you get a big group of mallards when you're on the X and they want to land right in front of you. Then, you know, that's just a feeling that that's that hard to get in any other type of hunting. And the way I like to look at it is the mojo helps. It doesn't do it for you, but it helps you get more on the X for those days that you're not fortunate to be on the X and about 99.9% of the time you're hunting, you're not going to be exactly on the X. You've got to get the ducks from the X, which is where they want to be, over to where, you know, you, you are. And that just that just helps hunting, you know. So I, I really can't give you, a, a, you know, an explanation for why these people are against it other than it's just not their way. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say about it. It's just not their way. But uh, if you don't advance the sport, I do not believe the young people of today would probably hunt a lot under the conditions and with the equipment and the facilities they had when I started hunting because it was a tough road to hoe back in those days. And we got to do, you know, we got to help make them successful or we're not going to have hunters going forward. 
Yeah. I mean, when you start breaking down the financial burden, or I don't know if burden's the right word, but you've mentioned it, that being a waterfowl hunter is expensive. There's a lot of gadgets that we have to be successful. Like you said, the transportation, whether it's a boat or a UTV or an ATV or whatever your your form of transportation is, your 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 pit blinds, your your all of your food your food plots and farming for ducks and all of the all of the land that's being um, you know maintained for wildlife and the advancements and the nutritional advancement of wildlife populations. There's a lot of money that goes into that part. And then if you break it down on a smaller scale, just your decoy spreads and your dog and the dog training and your calls and your waders and your gear and your insulation and your socks, everything costs money. So if, if you're going to go into that as a, as a newbie or a rookie or something that I was at one time and something that somebody like you mentors somebody like me in, I want to know that I can be successful. I don't need to be rich. I don't need to own my own property. I want to know that I have a chance to go draw a blind in a public area and give myself the ability to kill ducks without being a world class or quote unquote professional or world class duck caller or world class jerk string puller. All that stuff comes with success. You can't learn that all in one hunt. You got to keep going. And to keep going, you got to you got to get a little bit of taste, a little bit of that flavor of, man, that's awesome. I saw a duck do it. He, that was so good. And I, I don't know, I don't know where you stand on on uh, the the use of mojos everywhere i don't i've never really ever had the view of they should be outlawed i've never told myself or told anybody hey you shouldn't use a mojo i've always been a, a huge advocate of spinning wing decoys and the mojo brand mainly because of what you've done and the message that you do and what you that the the image that you portray on tv is who you are in real life and i think that that story and I want to get into it in just a couple minutes that the story of the brand and the, in the company is amazing to me, what you've done with it, where it started and where you've brought it. And I don't want this to come off of like, Oh, we have Mr. Terry in town to just be pro spinning wing, pro spinning wing, pro spinning wing. That's not what this is about. I just wanted to touch on it a little bit because everybody thinks, Oh, they just want that because that's their revenue. Well, that's not the case. This is this truly close to your heart that these apparatuses are going to develop a stronger hunting population and community. Is that safe to say that that's the gist of it? Uh, yes, that, that is the gist of it. And I believe everything that you said there. And, you know, hunting has been so big a part of my life since I was probably, I was probably hunting when I was four or five years old. I was probably hunting on my own when I was six years old, you know. I wouldn't sacrifice that for money. I was making a good living uh, in the engine, owning an engineering company before I ever got the mojo business. So, it didn't have anything to do with money to me. I started it with just a little sideline company. Actually, three of us started it. But when we started, it was just a little sideline company to all three of us. I wouldn't damage hunting in any way over a dollar. I just wouldn't do a dollar. It's not that important to me. And uh, I just need enough money to make a living. I was already doing that, you know. As long as I get to go, as long as I get to go hunting, you know. But th- but that's true, you know. Success cannot be based today on the same thing it was being based on 50 years ago world just don't look like that. And there's another important point there. And you, you you know this as well, better than I do. It's acquiring all these things is as much fun for some people as the actual hunting it is, you know. Getting a new boat, getting a new four-wheeler, getting a new decoy, getting a new set of your decoys, getting a new set of your waders. That's just all part of the total experience. And you see people, you know, going to Bass Pro Shop, going to Cabela Shop, any of these great big stores, you know. You see those people in there, they look like they're about as happy in there shopping for this stuff as they are 
out hunting. And actually, if you watch them closely, they are. Everybody, this is Chad Belding again with another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. And if you haven't figured it out yet, we're humbled again to have all the way from the great state of Louisiana, Monroe, Louisiana, Mr. Terry Demon, who is the co-founder, I, I might be corrected on that, of one of the strongest brands in, in all of waterfowl and all of hunting, as a matter of fact, Mojo Outdoors. Um, I The way that I would want to start this after that, you know, what we just got going off, is that Mojo started in 1999 as a brand. And you were inducted into the Outdoor Hall of Fame, the legends of the outdoor. It's in, it's a, it's in Memphis or Nashville. You went and you've done this, and your cohort, Mr. Mike Morgan, has also been inducted in there. Um, that's a big deal. That's not to take, you know, that's not to take with a grain of salt. And my question to you is if you would have just stayed an engineer and you never, ever developed the Mojo brand, and we're going to get into the Mojo brand in a second, but would you have been inducted into that legends of the outdoor hall of fame? If you would have just stayed an engineer hunting ducks and killing a few mule deer here and there and, and doing what you did. Uh, no, absolutely. I would not because their, their philosophy is to induct people in it that somehow, improved, changed, and improved, made the hunting world better. So I didn't get inducted because of my hunting or anything. Uh, I, I don't know if, I, if I'm justified to be in there or not, but nevertheless, their story to me was it was because of the, of the improvements to uh, hunting that Mojo brought uh, to the hunting world. And I'm going to start some some stories here, and you're going to finish them if you don't mind. And I'm just going to, like, paint a picture. And I just want to see this is kind of what I visualize. Um Bastrop, Louisiana, Monroe, Louisiana, dark parking lot, stores are closed, um, cars are pulling in. It's almost like a, uh, a a drug deal in America. And this, I'm picturing these brown bags with this sack, no packaging, no box, just a brown paper bag with this apparatus in there that doesn't look anything like what they currently look like in 2018, somewhat. But the, the original models, I hope everybody goes and researches. Um, there's photos out there of the original Mojo models. But I picture you and other guys walking up to windows, rolling down, and you sliding this brown paper bag through a window and the guy slide, you know, reaching out, grabbing it and then handing you a hundred dollar bill or whatever they were at that time. Am I close at that? Or was that something that I just dreamed up? No, you're pretty close. It's not quite like that. You know, Mojo started when uh, a guy named Jeff Simmons, you know, Jeff, he owns a huge, almost Bass Pro size sporting goods store in Bastrop, Louisiana, a heck of a place for such a big store, but Jeff's been very successful. He picked up on the spinning wing concept, which came out of California, probably starting about 1998. Uh, but it got to Max Prairie Wings in Stuttgart. They knew about them. They were selling them, but they couldn't get a supply of them. Jeff learned them from them. He started talking to all his hunting buddies around there. All, all of a sudden, everybody wanted these things, but he couldn't buy them. So he called our third partner in it, who was a guy named Murray Crow. Murray Crow's a guy I grew up with since very small childhood. His family and my family were family friends over in rural, very rural northeast Louisiana. His family was rather large farmers. But Murray, even though Murray's got a college degree in agribusiness and all that stuff, his father and his brother had died, and they had gotten out of um, farming, and Murray was tinkering with cars and race cars and pulling tractors. He can build anything like that. But he's also an avid hunter, so he'd hang around uh, Simmons Sporting Goods, so Jeff knew that. So Jeff just called Murray and asked him if he could build some of them for him. Now, it's in the middle of duck season in North Louisiana at that time, you know. Uh, Murray didn't know exactly how to make, how to duplicate the ones that were coming out of California because 
if you'll remember, I think you were around in those days, those guys used a small high-speed motor. They had to slow it down because a little motor of that time was probably turning 2,500, 3,000 RPM. You needed wings to turn six, 700 RPM. They had to slow it down, so they used a pair of little pulleys and a little belt, and a little belt was an O-ring. Okay, and it, 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 it would call a lot of ducks, but it wasn't a real good uh, device. Uh, and so uh, he asked Murray, he said, Murray, can you build me some of these? And he said, yeah, I'll be some. So he called me and said, you know how to size these little pulleys? Now, I'm duck hunting. Murray's family and my family own duck hunting property together, but Murray would never duck hunt. I'm duck hunting on those properties at this time. And he starts describing this decoy to me, and I said, Tell me again what you're talking about, Murray. And he started talking about spinning a blade and the white on one side, you know, and dark on the other. It made no sense to me at all, you know. And C. Fine said, I don't know, Terry. He said, I got one of these things. Jeff gave it to me. He wants me to duplicate it. I don't know how to size these components. Can you do that for me? I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's duck soup. That ain't no problem. I'll come up there tomorrow and we'll size them, you know. And so uh, so we we worked out what turned out to be the – uh, uh, the Mojo Mallard, and that's a pretty interesting story. People seem to like in that, but I'll not get on that right right now. So uh, I forgot how many Jeff needed, but it was in the hundreds. And, of course, every time they got out there, then there's more people that wanted one. And so Murray recruited a lot of his buddies around the, the town of Bastrop there that they build racing cars together and, you know, just ten, they were tinkerers all. So they cranked up and started making as many of these things as they could. And every day, at the end of the day, he would take it. He would take all that they could make that day to Jeff Simmons, and Jeff had people waiting for him, and he'd sell them all that night. They never owned one for the for the second day, and it got a joke going around town. That's what you were referring to. They say, well, people were throwing their expensive shotgun in the back of their truck so they could put their mojo, lock their mojo up in the cab. Now, obviously, that's not true, but it did make a point. And so they were they. At that time, were they being sold at retail in the store? Did he have his sporting goods store going back in the in the late nineties, or was it a parking lot deal? Oh no, this, this was a this was a big. Jeff had a big store at that time, so he did. these were customers in his store. You know? So, in in layman's terms or in short, there's a guy in California that's not too far from here, two and a half hour drive from here. Um, I drive by the farm all the time. The guy that had the spinning bullet, the the blade and the story goes is that you know and you've showed me the videos is that when people would get far away from this deal and look out across the rice check or you know out across the a, a rice field in in that part of california where rice is really prevalent like it is in arkansas in some parts of louisiana it looked like ducks this blade was spinning and at that time it wasn't even spinning at the speed that you have them spinning at now because obviously the size of the motors and the belts that you're using now but that is kind of how that whole phenomenon started. And I call it a phenomenon because it literally was like a new drug. It, you, you see new ammo come out. I've been introduced to new guns that come out. But the craze that I've, and I wasn't even duck, I was barely duck hunting at that time. Like in 98, I started, 97, 98. The craze that was going on on the duck hunting community at that time because of this, this apparatus was, it was crazy. I mean, it was like what you're explaining. People were like literally didn't care if they had their gun. They just knew that they needed to have their that mo or that spinning wing decoy to go to the field with. Uh, that is correct. And uh, I had a guy from California who happened to be a product designer, and he told me that, and I don't know how he knew this. I don't know if it's true that someone observed ducks working fans that they was using to dry 
vegetables and fruit with. And they'd take these big fans out there and dry them so they could pick them earlier. And, and I guess they gave off some degree of that flash, and these ducks would work them. And so that's what got them started on to doing this. The very first one had a blade, they call it the goalpost device. It had a blade turned on a on an H-frame like a goalpost, you know, just a blade turning, you know, because you don't really have to have a have to have to a decoy. And then these guys, you know, came up with the first commercially successful one. It was called Fatal Deduction. And it was it was built and sold by a guy that was a rice farmer there in the Valley of California, you know, and he's the one that got the craze started. And then, of course, when we built it, uh, our success came from just building a better mousetrap. And why... When you say better, did it? Is it more of a, a shelf appeal deal that made it better, or does it actually work better? That better mousetrap was it a better success rate on ducks, or a better you know the motion of it, or is it because a, a guy like me will walk in and go, man, that looks like a duck on the shelf? Not to mention with the, with the motor and everything, was it more of the of the aesthetics of it that made it a better mousetrap, or was it actually more um, you know were the results a lot better? Well, it was just a much mechanically improved device. Uh, the, uh, you know, as I was explaining before, these people are using a little pulley belt drive system. That wasn't a very good system. So when we examined that, and we figured out right quick that's not the best way to build it. And then I have to give credit to my partner Murray. After that, he, uh, he we 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 knew you needed to hook the blade, hook the blades, which were the wings, to the you know, directly to the motor, and you don't have this little transmission system, which was the weak point in there. So he took a large motor, and uh, he's used to building race cars, so he did all this out of aluminum. Uh, he uh, took a larger motor and put uh, the wings directly to it, and the trick to that is the motor that he that he was using at the time, which happened to be a Caterpillar blower motor out of a cab of a Caterpillar, those devices in those days, all that big machinery run on 24 volts. Uh, these things were running on six volts. It's not commonly known by a lot of people, but in DC motors, battery-type motors, as compared to AC motors like your house motors, uh, the speed that the motor turns is proportional to the voltage that you put to it. So this motor probably turned the standard 2,500, 3,000 RPMs when when Caterpillar hooked 24 volts to it. He hooked six volts to it. It reduces it then to six, seven hundred RPM. So now you don't have to have a transmission system. You just hook the wings, the blades, the wings to the directly to the two motor shafts. Got a motor shaft coming out of both ends of that motor, and they turn in the right speed. So it just was a better machine. Aesthetics did was didn't help us in the first year because he was just buying decoys wherever he's getting them. Like you say, he's putting them in a brown brown bag and selling them. So there wasn't a whole lot of aesthetic appeal back then. But we did come up with a Mojo brand name at that time. So I believe you could easily say we had the best brand. But the fact of the matter is the decoy he built was just better than any other decoys on the market. So I just want to make sure I have this right for the people listening is Jeff gets wind of this through the duck hunting community around Stuttgart. He comes to you because you're an engineer, or he goes to Murray? No, he just calls Murray. He calls he Murray. And what's Murray's, Murray's, what's Murray's specialty? Tinkering and building things, you know. He's a tinkerer. He, he was a, they were big, his family was big farmers. But his brother and his father died, and Murray got out of farming. But he just loved to race cars, build cars, he tinker. You know, he's built rifles, you know, he built anything. So Jeff knew that. And uh, so Jeff just looking for someone that had the capability of uh, building these, plus Murray had a shop. 
And uh, so he came to Murray and just simply asked Murray to build them. The only way I got involved in it in the beginning was because I was lifelong friends with Murray, and he needed some engineering help with the little system that they were using in California that we didn't use anyway. So in reality, because of your friendship with him is how you got involved. You didn't just, he didn't just call your engineering office to, he was like getting price checking engineers to come up with this apparatus. You were buddies with Murray at the time also. So there was a triangle of friendship going on here that, um, you know, got you three involved to start the brand together. That is correct. And since then, have you, have you bought those? Are you the sole owner of Mojo now? My family is, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. After probably six or seven years, those guys wanted to sell out, and there's a lot of people that wanted to buy the Mojo Company, you know. So they wanted to sell it to someone. So I didn't think it was the right time to to sell it, and so I just offered to buy those two out, and that's eventually what happened over a couple year period of time until I bought all the stock in it. Some of it's in like trust for my family and everything. So I don't individually own it all, but my family does. I gotta get in on that family. <laughs> you know what's you know how i market is is if you're using binoculars and you're looking at a guy's duck spread or you see drone footage or you're up in canada and you're driving around and you look out and you go oh somebody's hunting over there i'm gonna say and i might be wrong i'm just throwing a number out there i'm gonna say that 90 to 95 i'm wait i'm gonna say one number i'm gonna say 95 percent of people that duck hunt say oh they got a mojo going look at the mojo going Oh, they got a couple mojos going. And the reason I'm saying that is that you know your brand's strong when there are competitors out there. There have been competitors that have come and gone. There are currently competitors out there, and it's always referred to as a mojo. Now, there are other brands out there, and you know how you know that what, what we're loyal to, but they're a mojo. And where you're from in, in Louisiana, and if anybody's ever been to New Orleans or that part of the country, and you correct me again if I'm wrong. I'm just shooting from the hip here a little bit based on conversations that you and I have had over the last six or seven years. Witchcraft and voodoo and things like that. If you walk the streets of of of, of New Orleans and that part of Louisiana, there's a, a heritage or, or a history of voodoo, of witchcraft, of things of that nature. There's ghost tours all over. I mean, every time I've been to Mardi Gras, there's ghost tours going on and things like that. Is that the origins of this brand or does it mean something that you, you know, you got your mojo? Is it, is it dancing? Is it music? Is it vibe? What, what is mojo? Well, it's kind of a little bit of, of all of that, you know, having grown up in a really rural part of the South, uh, happened to be in Louisiana, you know, I had heard of voodoo, but I really didn't know very much about it uh, at that time. But the two strongest voodoo places uh, in the United States are South Florida and South Louisiana. You know, that's where the people came in from. Uh, you know, from Africa and from the South Seas uh, uh, island country who practiced the religion of, of voodoo. Uh, but it's a it's a kind of a funny story, you know. It's kind of a makes us look stupid, but I'd rather be lucky than good, you know. <laughs> and so uh, when uh, before we before Murray ever produced one of these devices, he said, well, you know, I'm, we ought to give it a name. He'd say we, but it wasn't me. I'm just helping him because he's my friend. He's building them for Jeff. Someone's called Jeff's, you know, our friend also, and he, he needs them built. And so he said, what do you think we ought to put in there? So I said, you know, because it's his deal. I'm not aiming in the deal. I said, I don't know, Murray, but I do know this. I said, in the, the corporate trend in America today is short, easy to say, and easy to remember. No one says General Motors anymore. It's GM. It's Microsoft. It's 
apple, one word, apple, you know. So it ought to be something along those lines. And he said, well, that makes sense. Says, what do you think it ought to be? Well, you know, I didn't want to name his product for him. And I said, well, you remember on our farm, he knew my family was like I knew it. We had a little device that my dad called a mojo. We didn't really know what it was. I think it was a little mechanical device. Had a gasoline motor, had a clutch, had some steering handles on it and whatever. I think it was supposed to have been like an old garden plow or something. I don't know, but... We used it mostly to pull empty trailers and stuff around because it's so easy to hook up compared to backing your tractor or your truck up there. And my dad called it a mojo. And uh, and so he said, get that mojo and bring it over and hook to that trailer, you know. So I said, you remember that? And he said, yeah, I do. I said, there's no word easier to say or remember than mojo, so let's use it. So we, I had my uh, graphics lady in my engineering company make him a bunch of stickers that says, I think the first one says mojo duck. After that, we went to Mojo Mallard. And if you buy one of them old ones, every one of them got a sticker on the inside on the motor. Second year, they had a, a serial number on them, actually, you know. And so we go on, you know, like I say, it's middle of December then, so it's probably not another month or so of duck season. He goes on making them every day until the end of duck season, you know, the demand for that time dies and it just stops. And um, uh, and I I would encourage Murr. I watched that. I seen how many people. If everybody in Bastrop, Monroe, Louisiana, every duck hunter's got to have one. Everybody duck hunter in the United States going to have one. So I kept saying, Murray said, you know, he's supposed to be in the car business. He's supposed to be robbing parts off of red cars and selling them, which is a heck of a good business. But he he wasn't working at it. He wasn't trying. I said, Murray, you ought to you ought to keep on making these things. I said, you can sell a lot of them. Nah, I won't do that. And so next week I'd say, Murray, you know, you ought to make these things. I believe you sell a lot of them. And I, I don't want to do that, you know. And so one day I knew, I've been around Murray my whole life, I knew he didn't like the business part of business. He'd make it. He'd produce it. He'd do the work, whatever you got to do. He don't like the business or the financial part of business. So one day just, I don't know why I did this. I was kind of just testing the water, I think. And I said, you know, Murray, if you want to go in that business, I'll go in it. Well, he said, I'll do that. So, so we decided then we cranked up in March. Now, here we come to the interesting part of the story. So, you know, uh, um, Murray could make them. He didn't need any help doing that, you know. He at least thought I could run the business part of it, you know, finance, get it financed and do all that stuff. I don't know if that was true or not, but that's what he thought, you know. But neither one of us could sell them. So we said, we got to have somebody that sells it, you know. So, so Jeff, we went back to Jeff, and so the three of us formed a company. I said, okay, well, I'll go do all the, you know, stuff. I'll get us some bank loan, I'll start making taglines and logos and things like that, which I can't do, but I had an extremely gifted graphics lady in my engineering company, so I charged her with that. I said, go make logos and taglines and do all that other stuff, you know, and one day she walks in my office, she said, do you know what mojo means? And I said, no ma'am, I ain't got a clue. She said, in that case, you're the luckiest SOB alive because it means magic, so quite by accident. You have named your product wow. a magic mallard. You know? No way. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, I'd rather be uh, lucky than good. But, I mean, how <laughs> – it's just like – because it is. It's become it, – it creates magic in a lot of ways when those – and what you were we were talking about it on the way out here from the airport is that having three or 400 mallards over mojos in a peanut field or a, or a – excuse me, a pea field in Alberta or Saskatchewan. And I say that because I've some of the footage that you guys have gotten up at – up at Ranchland, the last couple seasons has been amazing. Like some of the best duck footage that I've ever seen in all of the outdoor history, which I want to get into that in a little bit too, but that is magic. 
And it's just so unbelievable that she comes into your office and it falls into, you name it after a, a, a tool on your daddy's farm. And it, I don't, have you, did you ever get to ask your dad if he named that tool because that it created magic on the farm? No, unfortunately, my dad had just died by the time we, uh, we started this, you know, how my mother has patted me on the back a couple of times for giving him, you know, for giving him the credit for doing so. But if you go to the dictionary or whatever, you know, the word mojo means a charm. You know, which it, it, it'll get the word magic in there, but it's to, it's to give you a charm. And in the voodoo world, the voodoo women, the little bag that they had put their chicken feet, seashells or whatever, all of the little devices were, was called a mojo bag. And a lot of those women that practiced that religion would wear that bag up under their skirt in their waistband. It's just to bring them luck during the day, you know. And that was pretty much the definition of mojo until 1960-something comes along in muddy waters records the song I got my mojo working, you know, and it became so popular and all these people recorded after him that, you know, he he changed it to I got my magic working. And in, in the case of that song, I got my magic working with the women, you know, but nowadays if you got, I mean, I see that word being used in football and everywhere, so he got his mojo going, you know. So it, it literally has, uh, Muddy Waters really changed the definition of it to uh, to literally be magic instead of a charm. And at this time, this is all going on and you're creating magic for all these duck hunters around Louisiana and Arkansas and it's starting to spread. Are you a duck hunter at this time? I know that growing up, you, you had a lot of experience with big game, I I believe from the stories in the past, but are you an avid duck hunter in the late 1990s? Yes. Murray, Murray's older brother and I were both avid duck hunters. Like I say, our families own some uh, uh, properties down in Catahoula Parish. You've been there. You've hunted Honey Break. We've actually hunted our farm. You know, it's pretty much a duck mecca down in that part of the world. And so we had these lands, but Murray would never hunt. But I was hunting, uh, not every day because I had to work, but I was hunting every weekend. And whenever I could get off at the time, we were making these. And I got one of the very first ones and took it hunting. And I still didn't believe it. I'm going to tell you right now, look at that thing. I said, oh, calling on duck i've been calling ducks my whole life somewhere other so so you haven't so you you heard about the phenomenon in california simmons comes you and him and murray start putting these together they're building them you start to sell them through the simmons sporting good retail location in bastrop you hadn't really hunted them you're hearing stories of them and now this is the first time that you personally witnessed the mo or you personally hunted with a the mojo mallard i got one of the very first ones that murray built i don't know if it was the first one or not and i remember going hunting and you know, way before daylight, and I got a, my, my favorite pit blind up, you know, decoys already around. I just leave them around all year long back in those days, you know. And me and this one more guy went hunting, and uh, it's kind of foggy. You can't see very much. So I wait out there, totally lacking any type of enthusiasm, and stick this thing down to decoy. I kind of looked around to make sure nobody's looking at me, you know, because I, I don't know if this is, a, uh, you know, a good idea or what. And I'm just slowly wading back to my pit blind because it's a good bit uh before uh legal shooting hours you know and when i do i hear and i turn around there's about 50 miles landing right on top of that thing i said wait a minute maybe we got something going on here you know wow. so and we you know we were killing a limit of mallards then and as it, best i can remember from having told the story over and over ever since uh, the day that it happened we was probably averaging about 9 30 in the morning Limiting out. And after we got Mojo's, we was averaging about 7.30 in the morning limiting out. You know, so. so there's, being 2018, and you know that you concentrate on duck numbers, there's a lot less ducks in the flyways now than there were 15 years ago? Well, it 
I'm asking that in a sarcastic way because all the numbers that come out are best numbers in, in history in the last 40 years and last 50 years. So where is the proof that when you turned around and you saw those 50 mallards backpedaling, and I didn't mean to cut you off, Mr. Terry, but where is the biological or scientific proof that when you started this company or when the first one came out in 98, 99, why are the duck numbers so high and so strong up and down the flyers? I'm not saying that they're easier to kill. I'm not saying that you're going to have the best duck season in your life, but that could be due to refuges, ethanol, the migration being halted by mother nature, mild winters. There's so much that goes into it, right? Where's the proof? And that's the theory that we started this conversation with. Y'all were killing limits of mallards by 930 in 1999, 2000. And here we are almost 20 years later, and there's more ducks than ever in the flyways. Yeah, the golden age of uh, duck hunting is now. You know, I'm not saying the population hadn't been as high or a little higher in the past, but it's never been very much higher since they've been keeping records than it was in the year 2016, I believe it was, in 2017. So obviously we haven't hurt the duck population. The competition is much greater now, you know, and there are refuges now where ducks can get completely away from hunters. And I think that's good. You know, hunters complain about it, but look, we got to give the ducks a break too, you know. We got to raise, you know, we got to raise a lot of ducks, you know. That's just a, a, a something that's needed in hunting for all species. You know, there's more white-tailed deer in America today than there has ever been, including before white men was ever in America, you know. A lot more here today, you know. So, it, you know, that kind of gets us into a whole new story, which I won't go very far into, that, you know, a game is here because of hunters, you know. If it pays, it stays, you know. We talk about it all the time. Yeah, and uh, uh, but, but that's true. You know, it was great hunting back then. It's great hunting today, but conditions are radically different, as you mentioned. Competition is much greater. My, uh, temperature, climate change has changed the migration routes. Pressure has changed the migration routes, you know. Uh, you know, duck just won't fly up there in your decoys every day and let you shoot at them. It just don't happen. They wouldn't be here if they did. You know, they wouldn't survive as a species. So conditions are different, but it's not for a lack of ducks. So Sunday morning, you know, Sunday rolls around and you guys do what you do to end your weekend. And Monday morning comes around and you're in a, a county commission meeting. You're in a building meeting. You're talking with a contractor. You got a big engineering meeting that following Monday. Is your Is your mind just racing? Are you like... I'm giving up the engineering world. I'm closing the doors. I'm selling my company. I'm going into duck hunting business. Or uh, was was the the adrenaline and the emotional part of it just like the passion was just right there? And that's obviously the 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 brand is growing into what it is now in 2018. But that following Monday or those day, you know, those weeks coming after mm-hmm. the the inauguration of it, were you just, you know, were you just on the ceiling? No, I was not, Chad. And the reason I wasn't, it wasn't my deal at all. You know, and uh, but uh, uh, I wanted my I could see the potential in it. There wasn't any problem seeing the potential in it. I mean, if they'll buy them in California and they'll buy them in Stuttgart and they'll buy them in Monroe, Louisiana, they'll buy them anywhere people duck hunt in North America. And as, as we have later proved pretty much all over the world, you know, but uh, that was what would cause me to encourage my friend Murray to go into it. I thought it was a golden opportunity for him. And I was willing to help him any way that I could. He really needed something to do, and I, I didn't at that time. What if you if you had it to go back again, would would it be something to where you would have went out and you know you in, in today's business world you can go out and get 
a you know a line of credit. You can go out and get a, a, a investors and capital and private money and 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 a lot of money to to. Would you have grown it the same way that you did? Did it take? Did, it, did were you piecing it together? Is that safe to say that you were, or were you guys? Did you have? I guess what I'm trying to say is there's no way that you could keep up with the demand. So take me through that when it went from building two a day to building a hundred or 200 or having 20, 50, 60, a hundred thousand of them ready by duck season. How does that all, how does that all mature? Well, it, it, it was a challenge, you know, without question, because we were dependent, dependent upon Murray to build them. And Murray had a small shop that was suited for making these, however many every day he would make for Jeff Simmons in 1999, but he didn't necessarily have the shop facilities to make whatever we thought the demand would be. And uh, we had no idea really what the demand would be. Uh, in, a, in a meeting between the three of us, you know, we were beating that around before we ever made the first one. This is in the year 2000 now. Before we made the first one, well, Jeff was going off to Sports Inc. As you know, it's a buying group show, lots of retailers, lots of vendors there. The next week he was going, he said, I said, I'll beat it around while I'm there, and by the time I come back, I'll tell you how many I think we can I can sell. And Murray says, okay, I'll do the same thing, and when you come back, I'll tell you how many I think I can make because we're making them. You know, we're literally taking a decoy and cutting the back out of it and reaching in there and installing a motor, you know, and, and screwing a, 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 a peg into the bottom of it that you can mount it with, cutting these wings by hand. I mean, we're not doing anything. Uh, high volume at that time, you know. So a week or two later, I wanted the Jeff come back, and he said, you know, I talked to all them guys. I believe I can sell 7,500. So Murray holds up a piece of paper. He said, well, you know, that's the number I got. I think I can make 7,500, you know. So, okay, so we, I write a business plan, send it to the bank, you know, and we, we borrow enough money to get us through get us through that. And when the year was over with, uh, we had sold something. We had made and sold something over 15,000, about twice what our what our forecast was, but there was a lot of people in this business at that time. Patents had not issued, and anybody who wanted to make one could make them, and they were making them on their kitchen table and everywhere else. So there was a lot of people uh, supplying them to the market. But as as time went on through that, we went through a fairly natural progression. We started finding people that could cut wings for us, you know, that cut 100,000 wings for us, you know, with some mechanized procedure. We had... We had milled wing shafts. You remember them big old long milled aluminum wing shafts? We found a guy that would make uh, uh, 200,000, I believe the number was, wing shafts for us, even though we only needed 100,000, but he'd make the 200,000. That's the minimum he'd make. He'd make the 200,000 cheaper than we could make the 100,000, you know. So uh, we, we found those people to help us in about, the, I believe, the second year, uh, we developed our own decoy body. Up to then, we were just... Uh, 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 buying decoy bodies, you know, we happened to hit up on a, an old decoy that Flambeau made in those days called the Enticer. It wasn't really even intended to be a hunting decoy. It kind of looked somewhat like a feeding decoy. Had a base set on the ground. We buy, I don't know how many of them things, you know, 100,000 or something like that. Cut the base off of them, cut them all up, and make them. But it was still pretty crude, you know, at that time. Even though we were getting to where we were making more and more and more and more of them, you know. So some of the questions that, that I think are important with the evolution of the brand is, um, you, you put a mojo out and it's supposed to be magic. You know, obviously that's not the case. It's never, it never was. And it, it did when duck saw it, um, 
they were attracted to it. They decoyed to it. They finished on top of it. They still do today, but it's not like it's given. Like you turn on a mojo and it just happens. And if I was to ask you, like, what is the main function of a mojo when it comes to the hunting, you know, the hunting platform? Like practically, what am I going to do? What am I trying to do when I put that in my decoy spread and turn it on? You know, even though these devices have been around for what, 20 years now, the use of them is not well understood by most duck hunters. And the main benefit of a spinning wing decoy is a long-range attractor. But in the early beginnings, you turn it on, the ducks landed, you know, on top of it are pretty close, and you just saw a lot more ducks than you did. So it did not foster the thought that it called these, de- these ducks from maybe five miles over there. Uh, we had a crop duster in the first or second year we was in business, I think the first year, that told us he could see one from eight miles away because he knew where the decoy was and he knew where he was, you know, our crop dusters are. And, uh, uh, and that white flash that's given off that the human eye can't see correctly up close, you have to get a quarter of a mile or more away. And if it's a real clear day and you can get a mile away and you can see it or you take a pair of binoculars and see it, then it becomes a flash, you know. And we have some videotape showing real ducks uh, landing in low light or just loafing on the water in low light. It's more visible in low light, you know, that really shows all this flash type stuff, you know. So that is how ducks find other ducks is because of that flash that live ducks give off. Ducks are gregarious. They want to be with other ducks. Plus, there's probably the number one uh, issue there is safety. You know, if, 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 if ducks are flying around looking for a place to, uh, to land, if it's a feeding time of the day, they're looking for other ducks that are feeding. If it's a roosting time of the day, they're looking for a place where ducks are roosting or loafing or whatever ducks are doing at that time. So they see all this white flash. They think that's other ducks. They come over and they see your decoys. Then, uh, you know, that's a, that's a calm set of ducks. So obviously there's no danger there. And so the number one benefit to begin with was the long-range attraction of it. However, all the hunters saw was ducks landing on top of it. So it gave them the impression that it was a finisher. And in the early days, it was a great finisher. Naturally, as they catch on to it, I have a theory about that, too, that I'm pretty sure is pretty close to being correct, you know, that uh, uh, as to why they don't finish on it as good as they as they. Uh, did in the early days, but there's no information that suggests that they're not as attracted to it as they were in the early days. So, you know, when they don't finish on them, too many hunters take them out of their out of their uh, weapon bag. They don't use them. They put them up, and that's a mistake to do that because you give up that long-range attraction ability, and so a duck that's going to fly three or four or five or one mile or ten miles or whatever it is way over there, He's not ever going to even know your setup's there. You put the you put the spinning wing there. He can see it depending upon the sky conditions that day. He can see it for several miles, so he'll come over there. Even if he won't finish, you got him to come look at your setup. So, you know, the logical conclusion of that, and this is what we do, that if ducks on a particular day want to fly up about 50 yards from a from a spinning wing, they don't want to come in closer than that, take the thing and move it 50 yards, move it 100 yards. We put it on the dry ground back behind us. Get the ducks to within the vicinity of your spread uh, with the spinning wing decoy. Don't force them to try to get any closer to it than they want to get to it. And then work them with your duck hunting skills. You know, it makes perfect sense, but we, don't, we, we haven't done a good job of educating the duck hunters to that point yet. Even though we've tried, we just haven't done a good job. And, and you know, like when ducks, 
whether you're in the flooded timber and ducks are getting off the rice fields to come into the timber of Arkansas, they see that, that, that whirlwind, that, that grind or whatever you want to call it of ducks working a hole. So then all of a sudden 10 ducks can turn into 40, 40 can turn into a hundred in a hurry in the timber. It's the same over dry corn or dry peas in Canada. You know, you get 15 working and the other ones getting up off the roof, see those ducks working. So it, 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 spark something in their curiosity in their mind of saying hey let's go you know that's where the food is there's other action going on over there and like you said birds of a feather flock together so they you know naturally go check it out well the first ducks were over there because they saw that flash now those other ducks see that flash plus the live ducks and it creates this motion where they get in a race and i've seen it so many times where they start making those false runs in those dry fields and it's it starts because of the mojo and where i'm going with this mr terry is if you turn the mojo off at that time, you lose them. 90% of the time I, in my experience, and I've tested it, like, I wonder what would happen if I stopped the mojo. And I know that you have different settings and interval settings. And, and, and what I've seen in those, in the dry field, especially is that once they start on that thing, and then you try to turn it off, you might get a couple to finish, but you, a lot of times you lose that big bunch. It's almost like they're in a race to get down and they keep seeing that flash. And they're like, I got to get in front of those ducks. I got to get to that food source. Am I on to something there or have you tested that to where they'll, it, it, it's not a finisher because I, to me, it, it finishes a lot of ducks where you want them to be. And a quick story before you answer is I was with a hater. I was with a Mojo hater one time in North Dakota and don't put them out. We're going to kill them without, okay, no problem. No problem. Laying there in our blinds. Might as well have been taken. Might as well not have even been there. Put them out, put them out, put them behind us though. No, put them out. That's I, I lied. Put them out here they come boom right hey we, we're filming i don't want them on film i don't want to I don't, so put them behind us well they're trying to land on them behind us mm-hmm. well put them right put them back out front get them back out front and it was almost like this pride thing to where really you just just admit that they work and that this is fun and that it's powerful and that it's going to be an, a memorable experience i think they are a finisher in a lot of instances not saying i'm not st- arguing with you that they that your theory of attracting ducks to get them within your realm of your decoy spread isn't correct but I've seen them finish a lot of ducks. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. And I didn't mean to uh, imply to the contrary, but my point was their main benefit was to attract ducks from long distances, you know. Not to say that it wasn't a finisher. In the early years, it was a super-duper finisher. Some days today, it's a super-duper finisher. And depending upon where you are in in the migration route, you know, if you down in Louisiana, they done been called, shot at, you know, decoyed, mojoed, everything that happened to them, and they get tough down there. But my best lesson of all that, and I've had some stories like your story. I, I haven't hunted with them. Obviously, they wouldn't do that with me there. Well, maybe some of them would, but I haven't happened to be there when they did. But I've had outfitters telling me that story. But in the very early years, when we would be hunting in uh, uh, Alberta, and this was before we either had remotes or we didn't have remotes that would turn off all your decoys, and mostly – those guys in those days, those outfitters would just hardwire them so they could bring the control of the hardwire right to their mind. They could turn them off. And so I've been up there hunting many times, and, you know, we would be running mojos, doing good on ducks. Here come some geese. You know, geese not not very attracted to them, don't like to land very close to them most of the time. I've killed a lot of geese doing that, but typically speaking, they don't, they don't want to land that close to them. So we'd turn the mojos off, shoot the geese. We'd be hanging around there, and we hadn't seen a duck in about 10 or 15 minutes, say somebody said, well, I ain't been a duck. I forgot to turn the mojos back on. Turn the mojos back on, here the ducks would come, you know. So that's the best test that I've ever personally witnessed. And 
to, to hear, you know, stories like that. And it's, you hear them all the time. And I've witnessed it all the time of you almost get in a panic, like turn the mojos on. Cause you can <laughs> see the ducks out there. And I've seen it. I mean, I see it all the time where they get off the roost and they're going one direction and you hit them with that. And you might have to hit them with a call or, you know, get their attention vocally also, but it's, it's amazing what that, what happens when they see that the confidence that it builds in a hunter's mind and his psyche of saying, Oh, it's on now. Now that's not to say that you can't get on the X like we talked about before and have a, have your odds, uh, you know, pretty good odds of, of decoying some ducks, but I would much rather experience, you know, if I'm hunting dry corn or dry peas, you know, five or six times I do a season. Cause I'd much rather hunt ducks over water. That's just me, my personal opinion, but I'm not doing it without a mojo and I'm not going to turn the mojo off. Now, if it's not a finisher and it's just an attractor and they get over there, then I would challenge somebody to keep, to finish big wads of ducks by turning all your mojos off. Once they're within 50 or 80, hundred yards of your spread, I think they're going to land right on top of it. Now, my question where I'm leading into this is why the different heights of poles? Does it matter the, the amount, the, the distance that the spinning wing mojo is off the ground are off the water because you make them with short poles. There's been long poles. You have them on floaters. You have different bases for them. It, did you guys get studies back that the ducks, it's more natural to see that flash at different, different levels? Well, we, we haven't done anything in our 20 year history, a 19 year history, I guess it is today, uh, based on any type study that anybody sent us. Now they made a, a lot of studies back in the early days about the effectiveness of spinning wing decoys. And they, they did a lot of them in Minnesota, but they did some in other states too. And they'd basically go out there and 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off, 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off, you know. And because you can't really compare one day to the next day in duck hunting, as you well know, and waterfowl hunting. You know, but past that, we haven't had any any studies. Most things we've done, we've just kind of done by trial and error, trying to figure out what ducks do, you know, trying to figure out a duck's but like trying to figure out a turkey is not easy to do. Pole height, the distance of your decoy off the water does make a difference. And I cannot tell you exactly when it is. You know, some days you put one of them up on a high pole and they'll eat it up. The next day you put it on a high pole and they don't like to come up there that close to it. And I have been able to find no relationship that I can identify to that causes that. But, you know, like you've been on our farm, we we go by long stalks of square tubing and chop them up in all different lengths and keep them laying around there for use, you know. And some days we put them on a high pole and they work great. Some days you put them on a high pole and they don't work great, you know. And the only thing I know to do is we just try it, you know. We just try it. If the ceiling was low, certainly you wouldn't want to put it on a high pole, you know. But if the ceiling's clear, you know, it might help you that day. And it might not. You just got to you gotta let them. One of my standard rules of... Uh, of duck hunting, of waterfowl hunting, is you gotta let the ducks tell you what to do, you know. So you can't hardly figure out everything, you know. Some things are standard in duck hunting, you know, how to put out a spread, you know, and you know how to get hid and some things like that. But as to what those ducks are gonna do, you gotta let them tell you. And so you just gotta start off. And we have a standard rule. You've heard us say it a jillion times on on Mojo TV. If what you're doing ain't working, jump out and try something different. And that's what we do, you know. And we probably get out of the blind more than. Most well, I know more than most hunters, you know, because we have really aggravated some outfitters around the world, especially in these places where birds are easier to kill, like in South America, you know, and some other places, uh, Mexico and some other places like that. Because we're gonna keep 
adjusting that spread, not only to the ducks work, but to they work in that frame out in front of us where we can film them right. Cause we all, we probably don't shoot at half the ducks a typical hunter would shoot at, you know? So you learn a good bit about duck hunting when you're not only just trying to kill them, you're trying to get them to come around in front of you and pose in this frame, you know? And so if they're not doing it, we just jump out and start rearranging everything, you know? And, some outfitters didn't go for that in the beginning. Some of them kind of gotten used to us now. You know, they were, what are you doing? You know, so we're changing your setup. That's what we're doing. We're going to make them ducks work right out front if we can. So as the president and CEO of Mojo Outdoors <laughs> and the host of Mojo TV, would you ever hunt without one? Do you ever hunt ducks without a Mojo? Well, the only way that I would hunt without it is uh, if I thought uh, I could do better without it than I could with it. You know, I'm not going to be hard-headed and just say you got to hunt with them. I haven't found that occasion yet. I found the occasion when when pressured ducks, these ducks, ducks that I'm talking about that don't want to finish on today, they have been pressured, you know, probably not only locally, but they've been pressured, you know, for a long period of time because I'm in the very bottom end of the, of the flyway, you know, and you know how ducks are if they, they you get a fresh uh, a wave of ducks comes in with a front, you know, those ducks are pretty easy to work the next day. Next day they're a little harder, you know, and you can shoot those ducks about two or three, maybe four days, and they get to where they're pretty difficult to handle, you know, and that's when you start to uh, start changing your your tactics. But if I thought I could kill ducks better without one than I could with one, I'd leave the thing in the you know in the truck. People think that we say you ought to have a ought to have a Mojo product because uh, it's self-serving to us. It's going to make us sell more, but that's not true. You know, most of the duck hunters that's going to buy one are going to buy one whether it happens to work on this particular day or not. You know, they've got it. You know, they've got it there. So we don't view that as, as affecting our sales very much, you know. We we just call it like we see it, you know. If, they, if they'll help you kill them, then you ought to use them. If they want, then you should not use them. However, you know, I hunt a lot, as you know. I hunt about 100-something days a year, not all duck hunting. And, uh, and I haven't found a a place yet when I thought I'd kill more ducks without one, not good with one. When you're, when you're concentrating on the species of duck that we call the teal, whether it's the green wing, the blue wing, or the cinnamon, South American teal, that to me, in my opinion, is one duck that's never going to get tired of a spinning wing. Do they, do they, um, if I know that it's September, I know that it's the early season. I know that they're the blue wings are kind of the first ducks down the flyway in the Mississippi flyway. Is it is that the reason they decoyed to a spinning wing so good is because it's early in the season, they haven't seen a lot of pressure, not a lot of states offer that early early till season, or do they in that flyaway? And lastly, is it something to where they're the the level that a teal flies out and the way that they work the water and the spread is they, they kind of do it more on a on a lower level. They don't really come from a high, you know, high altitudes like a mallard would. Is that the part of it, or why is a teal just like it's almost guaranteed money in the bank? If you see a flock of teal in September, they're coming to that spinning wing, right? That, that's correct, and it's a little bit of everything that you say there. You know, some ducks just decoy better than other ducks, and some ducks are uh, decoyed to mojos better than other species of ducks do. We can't tell you why that is, but we know that it is true. And uh, uh, and teal are just ducks that love to decoy, you know. And um, uh, on our on our place, you know, uh, at certain times we have uh, huge groups of uh, uh, both blue wing teal in the early season, September then, and green wing teal in the later season. You know, come in in great numbers, and you'll tell they're migrating. They're up really, really high, you know, and we can see them come on to our farm, 
And if we there hunting and we running mojos more than white, they headed to Catahoula Lakes where they're going to, about 25 air miles from us, you know. And uh, But they'll see those things. You can see them fall out from, you know, however high they are up there as high as, high as you can see. But to, to answer your question, teal are, are a species of ducks that decoy easily. They do like to get down on the water, just fly around. They see, you know, they see that motion, you know, they're going to come to it, you know. They think it's other other ducks, they just gonna come to it. They'll, they'll at least buzz them while they'll land in them or not. So it's a it's a variety of factors. When on Canada, when you're up there, when this is the other end of the spectrum. We talked about till early season. Now you go late October, which is relatively late for the Canadian waterfowl season. It opens as early as September first or September fifth. Same time till's opening down in Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas. You have regular duck season open up in Ontario and, and Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. Does a guy at like at Ranchland, when you own that company, and I know that he has a friendship with you. I've had many times where you have a group of mallards come into the decoys early light, almost dark. It's legal shooting hours. They see those big Canada goose full bodies, and they're just woof because they they you know they they say, Oh, I've seen that before. I'm going in there. That's what they are used to seeing. If that's the case and you can kill them like that, because I've heard this said a lot, you don't need a spinning wing up there because they see the full body goose decoys and they're in there. And I get that. I've seen that happen on September 15th. When, when you can barely tell the difference between a Drake, you really can't when they're flying to the human eye, Mm -hmm. which is a weird deal kind of depending on what the way you look at it. Why do they why do they use spinning wings in Canada, Mr. Terry, if if they decoy so well to a full body goose decoy? I don't understand why you would go through the trouble of charging batteries, toting these things out there, making sure that your wings are there, you don't lose all these parts. Why do they use them? Well, you know, if we were there, it would become obvious why we used them. But I can tell you that all the outfitters we hunt with, they've used them every day before we got there. So there's a reason that they're using them. And you alluded to it a while ago. You know, they have those huge fields up there. And it's not just a matter of, of, of scout. You know, that they hunt by scouting, you know, and they bring the scouting reports in at night. And then they decide from there, where are you going to go the, the next morning, you know. And that scouter will mark the location where most of those ducks were feeding. And uh, oftentimes they'll put up a, uh, they're using driveway markers up there a lot now. I'm sure you've seen that. You know, They go out there and put that driveway marker up in the dark when those ducks are leaving and they can get back to it in the morning. But sometimes you can't always uh, 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 set up in the location where they were hunting before. And sometimes there's groups all over that big field. So the real benefit of the spinning wing decoy at that time is one of two. Number one, it's going to cause ducks to come to that field that wasn't in there the day before when the scouter, so you're going to get more ducks in there. The other one is you need to bring them to that part of that big field where you were hunting. A few years ago, we was up there with Rob Reynolds, our first morning to hunt. So we, we go to this huge field that they had scouted and seen a lot of ducks in there, and uh, and geese too, and uh, they had permission to hunt it. So we go over there, and before daylight, we run into some more hunters. Well, these there was two guys there, and they were friends of the landowner, and he told them they could hunt in there too. Huge field, so they leave us and go over to the other side of the field. We set up, you know, full-body goose decoys, because uh, Rob don't use duck decoys except for mojos. He puts full-body goose decoys. He'll put four or five mojos out there, you know. We had one of the best days of duck and goose hunting that I've had in Alberta, and it was snowing and getting colder and worse and worse. When it was over, them two guys drove over at us. They hunt the same field we hunt now. They had hardly killed anything. 
They didn't have any mojos. Imagine that. Yeah, they gonna come to they gonna come to that. You know what else? You know, thinking about that, I remember if you go north of where we're at right now, we have a bunch of mountains. You can see we're surrounded by mountains here, and a lot of uh, growing up, our dove hunting was done in those mountains. We'd find a creek that ran down through a canyon, and we would get around a tree, a roost tree, or a tree that they'd come loaf on in the afternoon after they went and fed and got water, and you'd be lucky to you know see 15 dove or walking and jump shooting them or whatever we did when we were you know being brought up in the in the mountains but walking behind my dad and then you guys introduce the spinning wing on a dove now you know being a hunter and going well this is working on ducks a guy like me should be able to be like well i'm going to take my mojo mallard out there and put it up because it's going to work on dove but nobody ever did it until you guys did it with mojo you I remember my first one, a one mile from where you're sitting right now at this place called the Opio Ranch. We put three Mojo Dove on a corral fence, and it was an amazing show. It was like being in duck season, back flapping right over the decoys and shooting Dove and having fun. And, and yeah, they were coming to us. They were decoying to us. We had a couple just regular standard Dove decoys out there with the, with the clothesline clips, and then we had this, the Mojos. You don't sell that many dove though, right? I mean, not many people hunt dove over a spinning wing decoy, or is it just guys like me that are loyal to the brand, or do you actually sell some of those? You know, people uh, always seem to be surprised to find out that our Mojo Doves are our number one selling skew that we have. Now, we only have make one spinning wing dove decoy. We make some more dove decoys besides that. So, and we make a number of duck decoys. If you add them all up, they're probably pretty close. But as far as our number one selling a single product it, it's a dove and one reason we do is that it's so successful you know and uh you never hear anybody say it's unsporting to shoot a dove with a mojo do you it's weird it's just duck it's, it's just a duck you can't you didn't do that but you know dove says you know probably about 70 percent of all dove die every year whether you shoot one up or not they kind of like quail are you know so they don't live long enough to catch on to them you know and so uh, uh you, you know dove is one of those animals that breed and reproduce a lot die fast you know as opposed to some animals the elephant would be the upper end of that scale that you know uh, bears are the same way you know they don't reproduce very much but they live long years it's just nature's way of you know you can be in one category you can be in the you can be in the other category so you're never going to hurt the dove population by hunting the market hunting wouldn't hurt the, wouldn't hurt do, the dove, dove population dove hunting in the south is is i'm not saying that it's as as big as duck hunting or as big as turkey hunting per se it might be but it's a religion down there when it's almost dove season it's a social event right you're talking big parties barbecues cold beers you're talking some music after the hunt everybody gathers in the morning they go out it's a big deal in the south right it's is a, that where the 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 majority of your sales are it's a, no our, our sales are, are are scattered all over but certainly the majority of them are across the south and uh, we have one big box store that's our biggest seller of them and that's because they have about 125 stores right across the, you know, starting in Texas and going to Florida right across the South, which is dove hunting. It, it's a tradition, you know. Actually, more people hunt doves in all those states than hunt than hunt uh, uh, ducks. And uh, simply because a lot of people go dove hunting for that opening weekend for the fellowship and the social uh, aspects of it that won't go hunting again that year, you know. So that's good for the sport of hunting, you know. It's an excellent sport for take a kid, get them started. You know, you're not out there in the freezing cold. You're not out in the water. You're not out in the ice. You know, take your wife, take your girlfriend, take your daughter, take anybody who wants to go. It's just a super duper sport. And so it's the highest participation sport 
across most of those uh, uh, southern states. I don't. I haven't checked the figures. Whitetail might beat it, but I doubt it. So you you have the ducks going. You got the dove going, and then tell me the first phone call you get or the first bell that goes off in your head about freaking pigeons like i i in this area of the country you know pigeons are known as like the garbage bird or the dump bird or you know just stuff that you'd see in old abandoned buildings in the old parts of downtown you took me on a hunt with with neil and the guys up in idaho i don't know three or four or five years or no more so no more and I'm, I think we killed 180 dove that first morning. I think Pigeon, we were, yeah. or pigeons, I'm yeah. sorry, in a corn. Yeah, I don't want to say dove, we were pigeons. Um, in a cornfield, I think we were, I don't even remember, but they're coming off of those cliffs of the Snake River, mm. you know, those big canyon cliffs mm. of the Snake River, and they're decoying. Like, it was like being in duck hunt. We're in a layout blind. A little bit of whistling. I think they were blowing a whistle a little bit. They had these full body, these full body pigeon decoys that Soar No More and Neil specializes in up there in Idaho. And then again, I don't think that you're going to kill pigeons with, with just those full body. Then they look good. They're a good looking decoy. But I, in my opinion, you turn the mojo on and boom. And again, 10 turned into 30 and 30 turned into 60. And there was times we were killing 20 or 25 birds out of a flock. Exciting. And they're freaking pigeons. So here we are again, the beginning of this conversation, the legends of the outdoors, why you were inducted into the hall of fame. Now, all of a sudden, Terry Demons in the mix with his mojo brand of making pigeon hunting fun. And it makes, it makes sense, but it makes no sense because why wasn't I, I've, I've, I'm right by Idaho. I'm right. I'm, I have so many pigeons right here. I could have been doing it for years and it's a blast. So tell me the first time that happens, how that happens and, and how it just took off because now you, you, you go quite a few, you go two or three times a year. Yeah. When we first started the first few years, we had some demand from Europe because pigeon hunting is a pretty big sport in Europe to kill rock pigeons over there. And, uh, but we could, we had no way to supply their demand. You know, it's be outfitters or somebody called us trying to get some of these decoys. And then we started getting contacted by, by Neil Hunt, the Sorno Moore guys in, um, in Idaho. And they were pigeon hunting and they were killing a, a lot of pigeons. And I know some people, you know, down where we are that would pigeon hunt, but not a lot of people. It's a, it, it, it's a missed opportunity. You know, it's one of the most hidden, uh, sports that's out there. Pigeons love the decoy, and they love the decoy on mojos. And uh, and they're most anywhere that in the United States, you know, especially if you have any degree of agricultural land. You know, I know up from where we're sitting here now all the way up to where Neil Niven is in Idaho, there's a lot of dairy business, you know. And, and down in Texas, there's a lot of feedlots from, well, from Kansas all the way down into Texas, you know, uh, Nebraska all the way down to Texas, a lot of feedlots, you know, and them. Those pigeons congregate around there. Well, they're a nuisance bird. In Idaho, those uh, uh, dairy people, and I'm not talking about little mom-and-pop dairies. These are big corporate dairies, you know. They tell me that a pigeon will eat about two pounds of grain a day. And that sounds like too much to me, but that's what they told me, you know. So you got, you start uh, adding that up over uh, thousands of pigeons every day, 365 days a year, turns into a lot of grain. So those people up there will actually let Neil and them come and hunt around their dairy facilities simply because the pigeons are such a nuisance. Well, if they're a nuisance and they are good a sport, you experience them as good a sport as you'll ever have, you know. I tell people it's like mallards on your best mallard day, you know. There'll be 25 of them come by, cup up and come into the decoys, you know. More of them that you can shoot at, you know. So it's a great sport and it's fast growing. You're starting to see it pop up, 
you know, all over the United States, here and there and everywhere. People ought to do it. It's, it's no limit. Most states you're going to have to have a hunting license, but that's all. Other than that, it's not a game bird. It's just a nuisance bird, you know. You can go out and kill all of them you want to. Have you eaten them in America? I have. Are they worth it, or, or were you they, dare? They, they, you know, they're good eating. Uh, so many of them that we kill, you know, we kill out of those uh, uh, dairy lots. Uh, and um, I don't know about eating those. That's a, a bit of a question mark for me. Um, but I have eaten them when we killed them out in those grain fields, like the day you mentioned Walco. If they're out feeding on grain stubble and stuff like that, they're they're good eating. So comparable, because I've had great pigeon in Argentina. Like it's as good as that meat, same kind of same kind of flavor up here. Or are they a little bit better down there with all the agriculture in Argentina? Well, I, I think I'd have to give it a little bit to Argentina, but also there's probably no one. Very few. Let me back up. There's probably very few people in the United States know how to cook them. They know how to cook them in Argentina. This you know, do you cook them like a dove? Uh, I don't cook. <laughs> I don't even heat water, Chad. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, the ones I've had have been like a, a reverse sear, and I just started learning this reverse sear method of, uh-huh. you know cooking it on low heat and then at the very end turning the heat up and that's what they do in argentina they mm-hmm. they do they sear it both sides yeah. and they get that outside kind of crispy but it's still medium rare on the inside and it was awesome yeah. Make- well like most fowl you can't like most birds you can't dry it out you know so no. if you dry it out it's not much edible so i i suspect that they just know a lot more about cooking pigeons in argentina than they do in a in america but probably if somebody played around with it and you're in a pretty good location to do it and you're a good cook unlike me and uh, so you ought to kind of experiment with some of that. Well, we got we're working on this cookbook, and I think I'm going to put a pigeon recipe. in. Sure. might as well. You should. So, so you have you got the 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 mojo mallard, and then you have the dove, and then you have pigeons. These pigeons being killed over spinning wings. So does a retailer come to you and say, "Hey, the mojo mallard's too big." Um, it's too hard for our customers. We're getting a lot of complaints from our customers that it's hard to move around. And that was the evolution into the baby mojo. And I'm asking this in a way of, are you just adding value or why would you cut down on the size of a decoy when you're getting the results you're getting? What sense does it make to now give them two smaller forms of that? Is it mainly because they can put two in the spread now for a, a, a reasonable price that they can afford? Or what was the thinking and the ideology behind the baby mojo? Because they come two to a set, right? Well, uh, uh, Cabela sold them. And so I don't know how many we sold over about four or five years in pair. And pairs come in a, a backpack. But it's all price point related. You know, I, I, uh, the, the mojo mallard is um, is bigger and more durable than the baby was, but the baby is the price point one. Uh, however, if you if you hunted for ten years and you kept yourself equipped with decoys, it would be cheaper to use Mojo Mallards because they'll last so much longer than any of these others because they have such a large motor. You know, you're not hardly ever going to burn that motor up out of a uh, out of a Mojo Mallard where the baby has smaller motor, smaller wings. Uh, you know, body is about. The, so the body is uh, um, uh, very similar. When we made the buddy, the baby, we called it the 78% duck fur until we had to put a name on it because we just shrunk a mojo mallard body down to 78% of the size of a mojo mallard. And uh, uh, but it's just it's strictly a price point thing, you know. So uh, uh, people will buy a price point; they just will, you know. So 
would you, as the owner of the company, as far as the effectiveness though, is the, is the effectiveness going to be the same out of the Mojo Mallard as it is out of the, the regular size Mallard, the Mojo Mallard. And I don't want to get into the one that you introduced on the market last year, because I want to, I'm, I'm really excited about that with the results that we got with that and what you have coming out after I saw it at shot show this year in Vegas. Do you get the same effect out of the the baby mojo? Is the motor spinning the same? Is the is the speed on the wings the same? And now you have two of them that you can put in two different parts of your spread. To me, it sounds like a good a good deal. But you're saying because of the the longevity of the bigger one, that's where that's a better dollar spent. Uh, over multiple years, the mojo mallard would be your cheapest route because it'll it'll last ten years. You might have to replace the wings or you know something like that, but you, you're not hardly going to. Uh, that motor's not going to fail you, you know. Where in the in the baby uh, Mojo Mallard, the motor's much much smaller. Uh, uh, you know, you eventually uh, uh, you eventually fail that decoy. Uh, you know, nobody will take, including us, takes the wings off of them like they should uh, to transport them back and forth, and uh, uh, and so they bend the motor shafts in the little baby. Just by throwing it in the back of the truck, the back of the boat, the back of the four wheeler, the back of the whatever, with the wings on it, you know. And you can't hardly fail the uh, the Mojo Mallard. So if you're a heavy duty hunter and you kept up with it for ten years, it'd be cheaper to run Mojo Mallard than it would be Mojo Babies. But you know, you understand price points. You know, some people maybe they can afford a baby and they can't afford a, uh, a Mojo Mallard. But like you say, you get two of them. We try to keep the wings turning about the same speed on all of them. Now, the dove wings turn faster than the others do uh, simply because it has a much smaller wing. Same motor turns smaller wing, turns faster. And then we came out with a little teal decoy uh, in which we were able to have super fast wings. I can tell you this, uh, the faster you turn your wings, the better it is until other problems start coming along, vibration, sound, noise, you know, that type of stuff. But the faster you can turn the blades within reason, the better, the more attractive ducks are to it. Doves are to it. Pigeons are to it. So now you have you have the brand going and growing like we've talked about from the ducks to the dove to pigeons and crows being shot over these. And we're going to get into some more of the applications soon because you have an extensive line of turkey hunting products, predator hunting products. Um, but before we get into that, I'm going to bring my brother in here in a little bit to talk about the success rate that i've witnessed personally over the last five years of shotgunning coyotes which i don't know if you can get a more exciting feeling in all of hunting i don't know maybe a grizzly bear you we're going to talk about you calling bears but a coyote charging a, a mojo decoy and being able to consistently kill them with shotguns that's awesome we're going to get into that in a little bit but i want to go into a little bit about this cat that you run with and i can i think i assume he's one of your best friends in the world mr mike morgan mississippi river rat mr mike morgan he's a outdoor tv pioneer was that is that fair to say that is absolutely accurate to say uh, mike got me into the outdoor tv business was was he a host of a show that that now tell me the origins of this i i i don't know if i've ever learned this i've been around mike a lot i love him to death being in camp with him being at mojo headquarters with him he's just awesome i, I just he just doesn't have any give out right he doesn't have any quit in him he loves to hunt and just go hard and just tell me a little bit about those origins though of 
the friendship? Was it before Mojo? And how did you get involved in hunting across the country? Because if you research Mike Morgan, he's also in the Hall of Fame in the Legends of the Outdoors. And I assume that most of that is based on his trailblazing efforts in the outdoor TV world because he is a pioneer in that area. So talk a little bit about how you met Mike and, and, and how that happened. Yeah, um, you know, the basis for inducting Mike into the Hall of Fame, as the Hall of Fame tells me, is because he is an outdoor TV pioneer. And remembering our conversation a little bit earlier about, you know, they, they select people, you know, various people can nominate people to go into that Hall of Fame, and then they're voted on by a committee. And the ones that, you know, receive enough votes, then they, they go in. If they don't go in the first year, they can go in the, uh, in the second year. Fortunately for me and Mike, we both went in the first year we were nominated, but it's supposed to be based on you advancing the sport in some way. Whether that sport is hunting, fishing, outdoors, or whatever it is, a lot of fishing people in that uh, Hall of Fame. But I met Mike Morgan a year or two after we started Mojo, and it was the very first shot show that I went to, and I don't remember what year it was. It was probably oh one it was in new orleans it was the last time it was in new orleans and uh, um, um, mike and a, uh, his partner was named jim jones uh they owned uh, a production company and they produced two award-winning tv shows that both aired on the outdoor channel back then and one was called hunting across america and the other one was fishing across america and i didn't know those guys or had ever seen those shows but they showed up in, uh, in our booth at the SHOT Show and uh, wanted a, uh, a, a mojo to go hunting with. They hunted a little lake up in Greenwood, Mississippi. You know Greenwood's good duck hunting country, a little lake called Six Mile Lake. And they had been the kings of killing ducks on Six Miles Lake forever because they'd been hunting for many, many years. They knew exactly where to go to uh, on different conditions, depending on sky conditions, wind, or whatever. And then hardly ever get beaten and all of a sudden somebody was beating them almost every day and so they go down to see what he's up to and the guy's got a mojo and uh, so they had to have a mojo we didn't have very many of the new ones then that's when we first came out with our own body the landing you know drake uh, uh, body so we gave them one that we happened to have there in the booth you know and they went and put it out and to hear them tell the story you know this guy goes buys him another one now he's got two and so he's beating them again, so they go buy nothing, and then they got two, and they basically created what we now call the multiple mojo theory because on some days, you know, you can put out eight of them and kill the devil out of ducks. When you put out one, they're not that attracted to it. I don't know what it is. I know it's got a good bit to do with sky conditions, but I've uh, studied that for a long time. I can't tell you what it is, but there are days when uh, if you have a lot of them, They'll really come to them, and if you don't, you don't. So that's when I met Mike Morgan, and I just got to know him, and then I, I bought a sponsorship on their Hunting Across America TV show, and then they started wanting me to go hunting with them, so I went and filmed some hunts because that was obviously in our best interest, you know, from, uh, from Mojo, even though I didn't know anything about hosting a TV show or anything like that, you know. I, just, I went hunting with those guys. They were you know, literally pioneers in the business, you know, and then I bought the title sponsorship. Uh, for hunting across America, and it became Mojo's hunting across America. And probably most of the time you knew it, it probably was Mojo's hunting across America. And then they had a third partner that was not active that had acquired their stock through, uh, 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 through, through uh, uh, someone left it to them, you know. And so they wanted me to buy that stock and become a member of that uh, uh, company, and I did. And so I became the third 
party in that, and we did that for several years. And about that time is when, uh, as you and I know too well, the, uh, the the supply of outdoor TV shows, they got more channels, more TV shows, and pretty soon the supply uh, pretty much exceeds demand. So the first downturn in the economy, getting worse hard sales sponsorships. So that business became, for a period of time, not profitable back then. So actually we shut that company down, and when they did, Mike Morgan came to work for Mojo at that time, producing our TV show for us. And, and what year did it officially go to Mojo TV? What, do you remember the year it was? I think it was. Uh, I think it was 07. So we're in about our eleventh year of Mojo TV. About eleven years, and with all the different platforms out there, from Hulu to Netflix to the way people are getting their content, YouTube, YouTube even has YouTube TV now. You have cable still. You have satellite. You have um, so many ways of going on and getting duck hunting action or or finding footage by Mojo. Is there a reason to stay on network TV still, in your opinion? In my opinion, there is. You know, uh, it's generally concluded that pre-programmed uh, TV um, by pre-programmed, it's it, it's it's formatted to a, a very specific format. You know. 28 minutes, 30 seconds, like we do now. And it comes on at a, a specific time, you know, does not necessarily fit, uh, especially the habits of the younger population today. And they like to view things on mobile devices and whatever. So we are in a transition state. I do not think TV is in your home will ever, ever go away. You know, it might, it will obviously become more on demand as time goes on. It's already doing that, you know. But I think it's a it's a very important portion of of uh, delivering your message to the in our case the hunting public. You know that's who we want to deliver our message to. I don't know what's going to happen uh, in the future, so I think we got to play around with all these different things. But I don't see uh, I don't see TV as you and I know it uh, going away anytime soon. So you you and Mike are traveling the country, Canada, South America, Africa. You you go all over the world really filming mojo tv mojo tv isn't a waterfowl hunting show it's it's made up of i would say uh you know mainly waterfowl hunting content but on there is the predator you have turkey episodes you have uh mule deer episodes you have tur you know a dove hunting episode a pigeon hunting episode does it ever get tiresome of having that camera crew at your back all the time and no, 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 no. I don't have them on camera yet. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't, not yet. Not yet. Hold on. Or finding out how do we hide them today? Or you get up there and you, you got somebody you want to hunt with and they're just like, oh God, it's going to be just tiresome with the camera crew here. Does it ever get old to you or would you have it any other way? Do you love documenting all these trips? Well, I, I don't know if I can give you the, the, the true answer to the question you got. I have certainly become accustomed to it. And now when I go hunting, when the crew's not there, I feel like I'm not doing something I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, so I, I just got used to it. But, you know, the, your, your point is it, it's radically different. People think you just you go hunting and you film what happens. It's not anything like that, you know. you got to go out there and make it work for TV some kind of way. You know, what we do, uh, Chad, is that uh, we air uh, uh, waterfowl or at least wing shooting uh, in the third and fourth quarter, we're on Sportsman Channel, and we do that because Sportsman Channel said they'd like to put our show in their waterfowl block. 
And so uh, uh, we air all our – I'm sorry, that's not correct. We don't air anything but wing shooting shows in the third and fourth quarter. In the first and second quarter, we air our other shows, which are Predator, Turkey, uh, Big Game. Uh, you know, I've had some sheep shows on there. I've called a grizzly bear. I've called a brown bear. I've called a black bear. You know, I just go off and do those kind of – I called a lion. I called a leopard. You know, I go off and do all those things, and we air those in the first and second quarter so we can stay in the waterfowl block in the third and fourth quarter. But, no, it, it hasn't really got old to us. So, you know, people – come up to me and I know they do you the same way say man I'd love to but I'd like to do what you like to do you know uh, I always tell them I say you know there's a whole lot of difference between going hunting because you want to and going hunting because you have to because it don't you know you organize one of these big hunts it don't matter if you sick or what you know if you can go you go sick you know and then you know you get tired it don't matter if you're tired or not you got to go so uh, that part of it is the rough part of it but as far as the camera being there and have to hunt for the camera I, I, you know, it does hurt your hunting. You're not going to never kill as much making TV as you're going to make or making video as you're going to just do out there hunting. But I've gotten used to it. I don't give it much thought. Yeah, and I think I'm in the same boat. I think a lot of it's uh, one cool thing about it is a lot of times when something happens, you know, remember back in the day, you'd be like, you wouldn't believe this. And then by the time you're done telling the story, they're like, you're right. I don't believe it. Like that's <laughs> that. There's no way that a, a, a grizzly bear charged you. And now you can say, oh, you know, I got it documented. I, I I have all these hunts through your historic career of hunting the world. You can show people what you've experienced. And it's not a raw, raw look at me. It's like, hey, this is what's out there. This is what we get to experience as a hunter, as an outdoorsman. And that's why, you know, the artistic value of TV production and in the field production and post-production and color correction and audio correction and interviews and, and telling a story and building a personality into these episodes. And and I, there's just so much that happens in a hunter's life. And it could, every morning there's something different, you know, whether it's a flat tire or a hot pot of coffee or a dog whimpering because he's so excited to go or a, or a kid's first coyote hunt or a girl's first duck hunt. There's so much that happens in our eyes that we get to witness and, and experience as an American hunter. That's what I love about the outdoor TV game, about being able to to go out and, and be humbled by Mother Nature on a daily basis. Sometimes you get them, sometimes you don't. But being able to go, man, today was cool because we got to see the Northern Lights in Canada. Or today was cool because we met a farmer in Kansas that waking up in Reno, Nevada every day of my life, I had no idea this man existed. And I really had no idea the passion that he put into cultivating the land every day as an American farmer. And that's what the TV part of it has brought to me personally, Terry, is that you can't explain that to somebody with just going hunting. You could say, oh my, oh man, it was amazing. The mallards were doing it perfect. Yeah, that's, I get it. I, I understand what you're saying, but when you could visually show them, like, I got to meet this guy. I got to hunt with this guy. I got to be in his house today and see his game room or have a cup of coffee with him. I got to help him fix his combine today, or I got to meet these Hutterites up in Canada and they brought me in and helped me fix my flat tire when I broke down. There's so much that you get to experience. And that's what I love about outdoor TV. And I'm sure you would agree with that. Absolutely. You know, and I have a saying and it's the sight, sounds and smells of the hunt, you know, and that's what we're trying to do is bring the experience to the hunter. I'm not trying to be a TV celebrity. That's not, that's not what I do. That's not what I'm about. You know, I just want to bring hunting to the viewing public. Now, true enough, it does help my business, but that's not the only reason I do it. You know, I could do things that would help my business more than what I do, but I want to bring them the sight, sounds and the smells hunt. 
And I guess I've kind of overused that saying because I had a cameraman in a foreign country this past year tell me, he said, you know, we're kind of sick of hearing the sight, sounds, and smells of hunting. I said, well, you need to be telling somebody else, buddy, because that's what we're out here doing, you know. It's not just about killing, you know. That's, no. that's not the deal, you know. Naturally, when you have success at anything, you wouldn't want to be a race car driver your whole life and never ever win. You'd get tired of that and you'd go do something else. you got to have success to stay in it. But you don't have to have success every day, you know. You just have to... Go out and enjoy the outdoors. It's such a great place, you know. It's kind of, it's kind of sad to me that so many of the youth in the world today, and especially in America, are growing up in these huge metropolitan areas, and that's getting worse with time, you know. And they don't have opportunity, you know. They're not mystic. They don't even know, for the most part, that it exists. And those are the people that, you know, somehow we, we try to to help in some kind of way. If we can't get them all out there, maybe they'll see some of these videos that people like me and you produce and put on all these different you know, different mediums, they all out there. If anybody wants to look them, anybody wants to look at them, they sure don't have no problem finding them. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's not our, it's maybe a duty and a responsibility, but the part that I enjoy most, like I was saying before is, and you just brought it to my mind, is the sights and the sounds and the and the smells of what we get to do. And it only takes about two to three days, and I miss the smell of a mudroom. As bad as that sounds, like old just marsh mud or or rice check mud from Louisiana or gumbo that you call it, and and going into a mud room where the waiters are hanging and the heaters are on and your mojos are charging and your guns are taken out of the case and dried off with a cloth and your ammo's getting ready for the next day and you know you're 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 wet something's wet you 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 uh you dry it out and you got your boats parked in the bays and they're ready to go for the next day full of fuel. And there's just all of those sights and sounds and smells that you're talking about. Then not to mention when you're walking towards the lodge or the, the cafe in these small towns of America that we get to, you know, that we cherish across this country and the gravy and the grits and the eggs and the bacon and the barbecue and the, the crawfish broils, which we'll get into in a little bit. That is what we're painting the picture. And I've said it before, Mr. Terry, is that the sooner in your hunting career that you can, respect and appreciate that part of it that that we get to do that that we're not entitled to do it that we truly are blessed to do it and that it's not about stacking them up all the time or piling them up because i think some of my favorite days are just when we when we when we we were driving around your farm and you were teaching me about the moist soil units and and the passion and the love that you have for that land and that how much enjoyment that you've brought to so many friends and family and friends of friends and family of family and family of friends that you can't put a dollar sign on that. You can't put a value on what that does. And TV and outdoor production and content deliveries open those doors for us to be able to not brag. We're not trying to tell you to watch our TV shows because we got to hunt. Yes, we get to hunt some nice places. We've got to, some nice doors open for us and we truly are humbled by it and appreciate it. So it's our job, in my opinion, to say, hey, a monkey could kill the ducks here. We got the best decoys in the world. We got two mojos. Uh, we're going to kill ducks. But it's the experiences outside of that actual pulling of the trigger. Don't get me wrong. I'll say it again. I love killing ducks. I love cooking ducks and, and eating ducks. But I also love this right here, knowing that I'm friends with Terry Denman because pretty much because of outdoor TV. I don't know if I'd have met you if I would have just been a duck hunter, but because of my pride in the in the mojo brand and us having a partnership for the last seven or eight years tv has allowed myself to become more than just a partner with you or a sponsor that you sponsor their tv show you know what i'm saying yeah absolutely i know what you're saying you know if you think about what you remember from past hunts 
Well, certainly on the days when it was just golden, you know, the decoy, the ducks just spelling your decoys are, you know, the biggest deer come out. You remember that. But other than that, you know, it's little bitty things that you remember. You know, it's getting wet. It's getting cold. It's a steaming cup of coffee, you know. Uh, you, you see that so many times in a, you know, in a duck blind or a deer blind or, you know, whatever it is. Those are the things you remember. It's not just about killing, you know. You brought up about the uh, management on our farm. You know, I have a really good duck farm. It's a, it's a, it's a high, high, it's a, it's what my buddy Phil Robinson calls an ancestral duck hole. Them ducks been there forever. When I first went down there 25, 30 years ago, some old, old guys then said, when that was in virgin hardwood, that's where them ducks wanted to go. You know, they get imprinted on a place like that. And even though it's changed radically uh, since then, it's gone to row crop. Now it's back to about half of it's in timber and half of it we mentioned more soil plants on, you know. And I spent a lot of effort, as you pointed out, on those more soil plants. And I mean, I work on them pretty much all summer long, spend a lot of time, good bit of money on it, you know. And then when duck season comes, I start traveling around the world. I don't, I don't want to get to hunt me. there very much. But people, especially people that don't understand hunting, say, well, you go down there and you grow that food just so you can kill them ducks? I say, man, I feed millions of ducks. I better don't kill 50 a year because I'm not ever around there before. But I'll keep on growing that food and I'll keep on uh, feeding them as long as I'm alive because that's just uh, – you know, it, it's rewarding is what it is. It's the heart rewarding. of a hunter, right? Yeah, you have a lot of compassion yeah. for the animals. Yeah, if you yeah. don't, oh. we're not murdering them. Oh, no. I love I love all these animals. How could you kill them if you love them? I say, well, if if people didn't hunt them, they wouldn't exist anymore. Yeah. I know that's hard for some people to understand, but if you'll study Africa, that's where it's most visible. You know, look at the white-tailed deer today. We talked about that a while ago. You think those white-tailed deer would be here if it wasn't for hunters? No. Hunters are raising them. They're providing habitat for them. They're feeding them. You know, they're, you know, they're 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 putting out all kinds of things for them, just so they can hunt them. Well, on a white-tailed herd, uh, on a on a not a high fence thing, what percentage of the population of that white-tailed herd do you think would ever get killed? It can't be ten. It's got to be less than ten sure. of all the deer that's on a, any one piece of property. There's no way they're killing 10% of them, you know. Uh, if it is, it couldn't be much more than 10% of them, you know. Now, I'm not counting if you have to call the does off of there, okay. Sometimes they get too many, and you got to call the does off there. You just have to, you know. And, you know, which brings up another point to me. You know, people beat up on us so bad about going hunting, and they've really gotten on Africa now, you know, about going Africa hunting and killing all this stuff, you know. And the fact of it is, if you want to check the, the facts, you know, the government crops them animals when the hunters are not there you know uh, south the 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 southern part of the continent of africa where most of the safari hunting goes on you know it's you know so many months of monsoon so many months of drought and they just hunt in the winter time it's dry and the summertime rains all the time so hunt in the winter time when they're not there they crop in elephants, they crop in buffalo, they crop in most everything over there, you know. So what, explain that word cropping to me, please. They killing them. Okay. They have too many animals and they killing them. And, you know, they're doing that with white-tailed deer in the United States, you know. I know that from having been on the commission, you know. They get overpopulation of deer in some of these leased areas or places where people won't, uh, uh, you know, won't kill them. They just go out there and kill them, you know. And and they do, I mean, like in states like Alabama, you, some, you can kill a deer a, deer a day, day. For, a deer a day for, for 60, 60 days yeah 60 days. yeah and then in like places like northern new york the whitetail population is so strong the 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 elk population in the west united states the turkey population the canada goose population you know specifically in the atlantic flyway the 
the the amount of conservation and dollars raised through you know duck stamps and other um, conservation efforts by hunters, the heart of the hunter is everything um, to the success of wildlife populations, and the people need to understand that. So whether it's the Audubon or bird watchers, who I have a lot of respect for, I love watching birds, I love seeing the beauty of Mother Nature. But we have to, I want to make sure that there's an understanding of what hunters do. And I've heard a lot of success stories lately of people realizing that, you know, that might not necessarily be a hunter or a quote unquote trigger puller. They're, they uh, understand and appreciate living off the land and hunting and getting back to our roots and that kind of a lifestyle. And it's because of the education that's out there that you can find that hunters really are putting a lot more than just death into the, into the word hunting. And, and I'm glad that you brought that up. And and a guy like you has served so many of those purposes. And I want to go in there, there's, you just brought up two really good points right there. Mr. Terry is before we bring clay in here, who's the host of dead dog walking and, and leads up, you know, a lot of stories with you in the predator predator game i want to talk about two things real quick before we leave duck hunting you mentioned the word implanting implanting means that those ducks or that ancestral hole those ducks went there for so long that they've been implanted on that area i want you to give me a little bit of a definition of what that word means and then i want you to tell me if they're not going to an area can a hunter implant ducks to get them to start coming there and continuously go to that area uh, you, you can, uh, the, the word is imprint, I oh, think. imprint, imprint. Uh, You can, you know, the, the, the reason that they have places they call uh, ancestral duck holes, I picked that term up from Phil Robinson, but I'm sure he didn't invent it uh, by any means, but it's absolutely true. They just have certain places they want to go to. Uh, and obviously you can change that because we've watched in our lifetime, you know, they convert a lot of of um, uh, a, pro- a property to a different food source like rice down south, rice in, in California and places like that. Up north, it's more corn. You know, down south, it's a lot of soybeans. And so they've made a good duck habitat in places that uh, before they converted was not good duck, duck habitat. But once you get a particular habitat and on any one given day or any one given set of environmental conditions, weather and so forth, you know, Ducks want to go right here, and they don't want to go 100 yards over there, you know. And so if I was helping people learn how to duck hunt, and I'd do some of that, you know, that's one of the first lessons, you know, that that I try to uh, get them to learn. And you can see that. But how many times have me and you, being experienced duck hunters, sat out there, and the X is 100 yards over there, and them birds will lock up and act like they're going to land your decoy. Well, they're not. They're going out there where that X is. But, you know, you keep thinking you're going to get them there. You're going to think you're going to get them there. And the truth be told, if you can, you better get up and go there where they want to land because that's where they want to go. I have three rules of duck hunting. It's actually applicable to waterfowl hunting. You know, first, be where ducks want to be. That's the X. Number two, be hid. Uh, if you can do those two, you don't need any mojos. You don't need anything. Just go where they want to go anyway and be hid, and you'll kill them, you know. But that don't happen to us very often, so you need through number three, and that's make your setup look like live, live birds, you know. So if you can pull off them three simple rules, you'll be a good duck hunter. You'll be a good goose hunter, any kind of waterfowl, you know. In fact, any kind of bird for that matter. So I appreciate you. I've been sitting there going, I'm going to ask him about imprinting. And then I said imprinting. I appreciate you correcting me on that. But so the, the gist of that is that you can imprint ducks because I've heard of, of, of ducks being 
you know, heavy populations of ducks being in places that they never were. And it might be pressure in one part of the country. They move over here. Like ducks are imprinted on Oklahoma right now. I feel because of the production of peanuts and, and corn and the other crops down there, the, the, there's a lot of mallard ducks, widgeon, pintail in the state of Oklahoma. Now they went there for some reason and they kept going there. Lesser Canada geese go to the Fort Cobb area. They went there for a reason and they keep going there. They're imprinted on that area. But historically, Oklahoma was not known as a mallard state. And now you can consistently kill mallard ducks in that state because they've been imprinted on there. And then you can take it down a little further notch of if you're going to buy a piece of property and ducks have, it's not heavy with ducks. Can you manage it strong enough to get ducks to be imprinted on it? I've heard success stories. I've heard failure stories, but I think that you can. And it's a challenge. I think it's truly a challenge to change the course of Mother Nature. Yeah, it's, it, uh, in that regard, Chad, you can help it. Whether or not you bring it to a real ancestral, well, it wouldn't be an ancestral pole if you change Whether you brought it to a real X-type farm or not or property or not, you know, the, we don't know that. It would, it would vary, you know. But certainly, if you think about this, you know, what does a duck need? You know, it needs water. It needs food. It needs a place to roost. You know, it needs a place to loaf, and, so, and and they all want to go basically to the same place, you know. So if the first duck don't want to go there, the second duck don't want to go there. Because one thing that always amazed me on our farm, now we got more soil plants scattered over 500-something acres that's not necessarily on a block. You know, it's a it's a bay going back up in the woods here and a bay going here, so it's a lot of different habitat. And so it'll grow that uh, more soil plants, and naturally speaking, there'll be little uh, openings of, of uh, open water there won't be choked up with the vegetation, you know. And a bird will start landing there at daylight. And at 10 o'clock, a bird will come. That, that bird was in Stuttgart, Arkansas at daylight, you know. It ends up down in Monroe, Louisiana. It goes to that same place that that bird at daylight went to. So something within them tells them exactly what spot to go to, you know. I don't know what that is, but it's got something to do with... Uh, 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 with the environment, you know. I was reading a thing the other day that's talking about all kinds of little nerve endings in their eyes is what helps them migrate for these thousands of miles. So they're learning a good bit about ducks as we go along, but we don't know. I don't know a whole lot about that right now, but I do know one thing. You started, the first duck comes to your farm and starts landing in a hole, assuming you have a lot of different options for them. And we do. We have a lot of different places that duck can land. All day long, every duck that comes along wants to land in that same hole. So... You know, that's a lesson that a duck hunter ought to learn. You know, if they're not going to land where you're hunting, they're just not going to land there. You're probably not going to make them land there. Now, you can take decoys and kind of, you know, chip a few of them off. And, you know, you can take mojos. You can take your, you know, your decoys and chip a few of them off. But most of them going to go to the same place the other ducks went to. And when you started talking, you know, before this, I said that I had two things that you brought brought to mind is I want to get back to duck hunting and, <clears throat> but you brought up something else when you started talking about white-tailed deer and farms and, and the evolution of the white-tailed deer and how healthy the population is. I mean, when you have places in the country to where you can kill a deer a day for 60 days, that means that there's a reason behind that much, you know, that many of those deer being taken out of that population. Another aspect of that is predator management, predator control, predator management, um, you know, making sure that we keep predators in check in the duck world, there's skunks and there's hawks and there's eagles and there's red, red tail foxes. They say a fox can, a fox will kill a million adult ducks a year. Foxes do adults. That doesn't count the babies or anything else that they the run eggs. into the or eggs. the eggs like yeah. skunks get to. Yeah. So in foxes, they'll go scavenge a, just destroy a nest. 
um, with that being said, we're bringing my brother Clay in, Dead Dog Walking. We've been had a partnership with Mojo over the last seven or eight years on that. And, and Chase is sitting in here too. He's had a lot of success over the Mojo products. Chase, can you say hi to Mr. Terry? Hey, buddy. How you doing? I saw you on TV. <laughs> so, and, that, and how awesome is that, though, that you have a six-year-old kid shooting his first coyote at 80 yards over a mojo that comes in and stops and the only reason he stopped is because clay whistle stops him so he could shoot him because he had the rifle he's not big enough for the shotgun yet um where i'm going with that is the mojo product line here we go again the 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 success the confidence the excitement level of a mojo decoy spinning and why i didn't do it 15 years ago when i first started coyotes i have coyote calling and trying to kill coyotes i have no idea but doing it makes me never want to bring a rifle coyote hunting again, which I'm not saying I won't. But the, other, the, the ideology has always been the exact opposite, right, Mr. Terry? I don't need a shotgun. Not many guys carried a shotgun unless you really knew how to predator hunt. You'd see most guys get really amped up with a 22 250 with a bull barrel, with their ammo, their optics. Everything was just perfect because their precision shooting is what mm -hmm. counted. Because a, a coyote's vitals are only that big. They're very small. So as a rifle hunter, you had to be dead on. But now, and I want Clay to talk about this. I don't think there's anything better, like I said before, in all of hunting, maybe mallard ducks, than a coyote with his hackles up charging. I've seen him jump over rocks, jump over sagebrush, knock your decoys off of it. We, you, you've made a tradition or you've made it known that coyote hunting is the best when you're killing them with shotguns at 15 yards. Is it safe to say that that's one of your top two hunting pleasures is calling coyotes and seeing them react to your decoy? Uh, without a question, I'll give you a little bit of history about how all that came about. I've, I've been a predator caller since I was in high school, but I was never real avid at it because down where I live, uh, when I was a small kid, you know, there wasn't that many coyotes down there. There was a lot of fox, you know, but nobody called fox in the daytime. They called fox at night. So we'd go out at night a little bit. It was legal back then. You know, we didn't have much for a light. We didn't know what we were doing, you know, and we'd kill a few, but it wasn't. You know, it just wasn't really that successful, but I liked it. And But when I started going to Texas, and for many, many years, I used to help this big ranch in Texas with their hunting. They they just wanted someone to help them with it. I just loved being out there and hunting, so I helped them with it for years. And and I got uh, I had an opportunity to start calling. Um, actually, even before then, when I graduated from college, I was working for the government in Bismarck, North Dakota, as an engineer, and I got calling more up there because it was better in better calling country up there. Well, when I got into the decoy business, I said, well, you know, I love calling. And I said, you know, we ought to make a, we ought to make a decoy for, for, for calling predators. You know? So uh, we made one. I thought it was a great decoy. It didn't ever sell very good. Tell you the truth about it, I didn't kill a whole lot of decoy, a whole lot of cows with it, you know. And so I got to talking to old-time Died in the wool callers. Some of these were government hunters and people like that. Dan Thompson, I don't know if you, he's dead. dead now, but his his call company's still around. He was famous for that red de red desert howler caller, you know. Somehow he befriended us along the way, you know. He's a crusty old guy, and uh, uh, I learned a lot from him and people like him. And so I started talking to him about decoys, and the consensus. Uh, of the bunch was, well, sometimes they help you and sometimes they scare the thing off. They cost too much money and they're too much trouble to wag around. So I said, okay, I got that figured out. So I'm going to write on a piece of paper that says they got to be cheap, they got to be portable, they got to be effective, and they can't scare a predator. That's the four things you got to do. So we started playing around with it, and then we came up with a little thing that we call the critter, which is the fuzzy top on the 
on a, a speedometer looking cable thing, you know. I can't tell you how we got there. We just tried everything in the country, you know. But when we when we finally came up with that, it met that four criteria. And predator decoys didn't sell too good before then. In the first two years that we had that out, maybe not the introductory year, I don't remember, because sometimes it just takes a little while for people to learn this out there. But the next two years when we were first selling them, we sold 35000 a season for two seasons and was always on back order. So we'd have sold a lot more. Like when we'd get 8,000 of them in, we shipped 8,000 of them out, you know. And so, uh, you know, it, it got people started uh, uh, decoying uh, 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 coyotes. And I was at a show in Birmingham, Alabama, and there was a bunch of coyote callers, you know, standing around a, a, a predator hunting booth. And I went by there, and, and, uh, and one of them told me, says, uh, he says, uh, your decoy turns too fast. I said, really? So you've been hunting with it? And he said, no, nah, but it, I looked at it on the turf too fast. I said, okay. The other one stepped up and said, no, nah, that's not the problem. He said, the problem you got with that decoy demon is you can't stop the coyote for a shot, you know, and that's the same thing we'd experience. You know, these guys like to call them up and, uh, uh, you know, stop them out there 7,500, you know, even further than that, if you're long-range shooters, you won't stop them several hundred yards, you know, and shoot them with a rifle. And that's the sport we were doing. And there's nothing wrong with that sport. It's great. I don't have one bad thing to say about it. I mean, a sport's a sport. That ain't my sport today. My sport's shotgunning because what I found out was I couldn't stop them either. And they would lock onto that decoy. They run right up to it. And then they bust in 180 degrees and they're going out fast and they come in and it didn't make a rifle shot. So that's what got me to taking a shotgun on the stand was then we'd take a shotgun and a rifle, you know. But that shooting them with a shotgun just turned out to be so. Uh, uh, so exciting, I guess it was. Uh, I don't know if y'all know uh, uh, a young lady from down home called Hannah. You remember the real popper Hannah and Kaylee videos with a Hannah half, a Hannah and Kaylee is a friend of mine, and she shoots, uh, she hunts with us a good bit, you know. And she was telling me the other day, said her and her husband they watch our show on TV, and she said. You know, about the only time I ever see you get excited on TV, I'm not an excitable type of person, in case you didn't notice. And the only time I ever see you get excited on TV is when you're calling coyotes. He said, but, you know, other than that, I say, oh, well, let's walk over here and shoot that hippopotamus. I said, I've never shot a hippopotamus, but I thought that was a pretty good example. She, but, boy, she said, when you go coyote hunting, now you get pumped up, you know. So, you know, I, I don't have any beef with anybody else's sport about calling predators. Do it any way you want to as long as you go hunting. That's all I care about, but. To me, it's hard to be calling them right up in your lap and shooting them with a shotgun. Would you agree with that, Clay? Yeah, I'm, when we go out on the stand, you know, I'm usually with our other, <clears throat> excuse me, our other brother Clint and Alex Crosby, who you know. And if they want the shotgun, I kind of get upset because I, I want it in my hands. And now that I'm taking Chase out, I kind of have the the double-edged sword kind of deal. I want to shoot him at 15 feet because I want to see the action there, but I also want him to shoot one. So now, usually I just leave the shotgun in the truck to make him shoot the coyote now. So, yeah, there's no other feeling to see them rushing in like that. I have I haven't experienced it, though. And, uh, you know, I've called all kinds of, of game. I mentioned that a while ago. You know, I've called all three of the big bears, and I've called lions, and I did not kill a big male lion. Caught them, but I caught them for 21 days in Mozambique, Africa. I did call some of them up, but I didn't call the right one. I did call a leopard up 35 yards and kept it for about 20 minutes, you know. And so, but I tell you, you know, as fun as that was and as much as I wanted to do it, I've called wolf. Um, uh, I've called, you know, a lot of bobcats and uh, things like that. But of all the big game I've killed, I, I just, 
like shooting them cows about as good as anything. What what with uh with the words predator management use, you know, there's a couple different ways or a couple different reactions and feelings that I get about it. Like one of the things that pisses me off a lot is when I hear somebody, whether you're a hunter or just somebody that, that had lost a dog to a coyote or a dog, you know, you go into these stores around here, I'll take you there this evening and you walk in and on lost cat, lost cat. They're not coming back. Not where we live. They're not coming back. We're, we're in the top five most populated cities in America, probably two behind Los Angeles per capita of coyotes and Nevada's a, has a ton of coyotes. So I hate when I hear people say, I hate coyotes. They're, they're useless animals. And the reason I say that is, and the reason I say that there's different emotions with that, Mr. Terry and Clay is that if I'm a, if I'm a cattle rancher and I'm losing a bunch of calves to coyotes during the calving season, I could probably have that ideology that I hate coyotes because they're, they're, they're tapping into my, my, my bloodline, my, my livelihood, the way that I provide for my family. But really, it's our responsibility. There's another reason right there for predator management, to protect livestock, to protect wildlife populations like elk or deer and, and all of that. So when people say, I hate coyotes, I want to just say, do you understand how adaptable they are? Do you understand how good of hunters they have to be to live out where they live? And, and they got to catch grasshoppers in the summer. And then they got to eat two pounds of raw meat in the winter to survive. And do you know how hard it is for them to survive? And then the, the, the ability to be adaptive and adaptable, wherever you put them, they're going to survive, they say. So I, I just was, I really wanted to go into that is that predator hunters don't kill predators because we hate coyotes or hate bobcats or hate mountain lions or hate lynx or whatever we're harvesting. We don't hate, hate them. Tell me if I'm wrong, but... I have a, a huge respect for predators on the way that they live. And when people say, well, they took my dog. They, hey, listen, they were here way before us. We built these houses where coyotes have been living for hundreds of years. It's our responsibility to protect our pets. If you don't want your little dog or puppy to be missing, you probably shouldn't leave them out in your backyard because a coyote gets wind of him. They can do a lot of things to seduce them in range. They can dig holes. They can jump over things. Coyotes are a badass animal. So I'm not trying to be on a soapbox. I'm just trying to say is that I just don't like when I hear people say, I hate freaking coyotes or they all deserve to die. That Nothing drives me nuts more in hunting than hearing that. Well, you know, the old, old saying is the last two animals on the planet will be a coyote and a cockroach, you know, so... And uh, I don't know much about cockroaches, but I think coyotes, uh, coyotes will be there. If you think about it like this, you know, originally, like when I was, a, uh, uh, you know, college age, uh, uh, coyotes were mostly confined to the western uh, United States. You know? They were just coming in to, uh, I'm, the, well, I'm the first state across the Mississippi River. I was just coming in. I'm the first state this side of the Mississippi River. We're out west now, you know. Uh, uh, they were just coming into that country at that time, but now they've expanded to every state in the lower 48 in, in Alaska. Couch are in Alaska too. They've gone all the southern half of, uh, of uh, Canada. And I've seen some maps, very clever maps, where they plotted the demise of the wolf and the filling in of the coyote, you know. And so if somebody doesn't control them, they'll get totally, totally out of hand, you know. And, uh, uh, and like I say, they can be destructive. You just don't, you need coyotes. You need all these other creatures. You just don't need too many of them, you know? And so, uh, it, it, I, I really don't understand people that are mad because we go coyote hunting. Now, I'm sure the same thing happened to you, but you know, we constantly get this hate mail because we're hunters, you know, we get these death threats, you know, I probably get a hundred of them a year, you know, which 
I didn't get very many last year. I didn't get as many as usual last year. Maybe I'm not as good a hunter as I was. Maybe I, I lost so I ain't getting much hate mail, death threats as I did before. But, you know, one of the animals that they after us the most about, the haters, is the antis, is the coyotes, you know. It's it's nonstop. And I, I, we were a part of it this year, and I was, you know, I, I don't let a lot of things get to me. Um, and when Chase killed his first coyote, obviously was proud, mm-hmm. posted some pictures, and here comes the antis and the people who don't know what the hell they're talking about saying, oh, good job, you're raising the next school shooter. And I took a picture of that, posted it again, and they just got lit up, you know, oh, yeah. just how ignorant they are. And a lot of people don't understand how d- destructive they are, the coyotes, not just to the animal or the populations for farmers and stuff, but for like a state in Nevada, we're a draw state only for big game animals. So it's a lottery system from anybody who wants to hunt as a, um, native Nevadan or anybody that's, you know, from another state that can, can come here and put in their name into the draw system. And we have certain areas in Nevada. I don't know. A lot of people might not understand this about Nevada. It's not like you can go maybe in Louisiana or in Alabama, you can go buy a tag over the counter, right? Mm-hmm. That's it here in Nevada. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. It's a draw state only. And the biologists go into all these different areas and say, okay, the population is X of deer, X mm-hmm. of sheep, X of elk. And we were going to this year allow 50 deer to be killed, 25 deer to kill, 80 elk to be killed in all these different areas. Now, if you let the populations of mountain lions and coyotes run rampant, the state of Nevada is losing a bunch of money because they're now the, the populations of all those animals are way down and they cannot provide that tag to the person hunting them. Mm-hmm. So not only does it lessen the money for all the farmers, but the state of Nevada loses a ton of money from predation because they can't provide those tags to the people that want to hunt them in licenses and tag sales and all that stuff. So just the respect that you have to give to that animal, it, they're, they're, it's insane. If you just start looking at it from that point of view instead of just the destructive side that they are and thinking that you hate them, you you would change a lot of people's minds. Oh, there's no question about it, you know, and it even goes – uh, even deeper than that is you get, let's take elk, for example. As you get, as the state of Nevada gets less elk tags, there becomes less people interested in uh, going elk hunting because they don't have opportunity to do so. Sure. And that really curtails the money that goes from hunters into conservation, you know. So it's uh, either snowballing up or snowballing down, you know. The same thing happens with, you know, white-tailed deer. White-tailed deer is so adaptable to all the different environments in the United States. That's why there's so many of them. So that's why there's so many uh, whitetail hunters. And that's why there's such a unbelievable amount of, of money put in from the hunting community into the preservation of whitetail deer, you know, and, and what we have today in terms of a whitetail herd on a national basis, you know, is absolute proof of uh, what we're saying here. Do you have an issue at all, Mr. Terry, with trapping? Uh, no. No, I don't have an issue with the take of of uh, wild game by any uh, ethical and moral basis. Uh, now, people can raise some complaints about leg trapping, you know, because you know they can say, "Well, the animal suffered till you come got him out of the uh, out of the uh, 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 leg trap." But uh, you know, I, I'm a proponent of the uh, uh, idea. It's not a theory by by any means of the idea that. You know, you got to manage all wild game by some logical basis. You can't do it by an emotional basis, you know. You can't, you know, these people that hate us for killing a duck, killing a cow, killing a deer, killing a thing, 
they're dealing with that one individual deer. They can't see that uh, the whole species of deer benefit because you took that one old buck that basically the herd had no use for anymore, you know, but they can't think like that. They just think like that's a precious life and you shouldn't have taken it. But you can't manage animals like that, especially you can't manage uh, wild animals like that. Now, you can't manage domestic animals either, but nobody thinks anything about it. I got enough pasture for 100 head of cows, and, you know, the rancher's not going to let more than 100 head of cows in that pasture, you know. He's taking care of management in that, but, you know, somebody's got to do it for wild game, and you just got to you got to consider the, the herd, the species as a whole, and that's not what these people are doing. They're, they're considering these animals to be one individual animal that you shouldn't have killed, and that's just not sound reasoning. Staying on predator control and why Clay's here, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you mentioned it before, and I'm just sitting here like, if I could roll my eyes at you, I would, because I'm like envious when you talk like this. You go, I've called a brown bear, I've called a grizzly bear, I've called a black bear, I've called a lion, I've called a leopard, and I'm like, yeah, right, right. That's, again, and you've documented all of it. You, people can sit there all day long and say what they want about calling game and different ways of taking game. And I think that being able to sit down in one location and call game to you, communicating, vocalizing with a, 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 a wild animal, getting that bear to come to you, getting that coyote to come to you, getting those ducks to come to you, um, everything that goes into being, and I know that I, I think that you're obsessed with decoying and calling wild game and getting them as close as possible. Could you, instructional wise is there a way to teach somebody how to be a successful predator hunter and the way the reason that i say that is that you're not going to teach a guy in florida the same way that you're going to teach a guy out here because our odds out here are a lot better our opportunities a lot higher out here but could you teach that guy in florida that might see two coyotes a season to be a successful predator caller with your methods and on a step up from that could you teach clay and i how to call a bear, or is it exactly the same as calling a coyote when it comes to the application of being where that you know that there's a bear somewhere relatively close? Is the rest of it the same? And is it possible to teach somebody how to be a good predator hunter? Uh, yeah, uh, sure, sure you could, uh, uh, Chad, and uh, and sure you could teach someone how to call bears, and but uh, you know to call any game, you got to know something about that game. You know that's just that's just a fact of life. You know you can. You can kill whitetails without really knowing a whole lot about whitetails. You know, you just, you know, you get them coming into some location. You know, they, they, they tend to hunt them, especially down south in the Midwest. They tend to hunt them out of, out of hides, stands, blinds, whatever you want to call it. You know, uh, but in, but in calling, notwithstanding the fact that you might just go out there and turn the collar on one day, you know, which reminded me of an interesting story when, when Mike Morgan kind of first hooked up with us. He had a teenage son named Buck. And that's on his birth certificate, according to Mike Morgan. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, he'd see us go hunting and, and whatever. So he's, he wanted to borrow his dad's collar. And him and his little teenage buddy was going to go down the road a little bit and call, you know. And Mike said, well, you know, this, this is not easy to do now, guys. You know, maybe we ought to, you know, tell you something about it. Something. Nah, don't worry about that. They go out and turn the collar on, boogity, boogity, boogity. Here come a bobcat up there. They shoot it, you know. They come back to the house and say, I ain't nothing to this This is stuff, easy you know? stuff. So, so you, know, you know, you know, I've got on some stands, and we've all got on a lot of stands. I said, boy, stand great. It's going to happen here. It don't happen. I got on stands. There ain't no way we're going to call. <laughs> That's a darn stand. The cow's run right up there and jump and you laugh. And so aside from that, just as far as being consistently successful, 
Uh, my, my view of that is predator calling is pretty simple. Uh, it's nothing complicated at all about it, but uh, it's extremely acute to the details. So if you're not going to tend to the details very acutely in details like when and, you know, what's the most important part of, of a setup to me is getting on. Once you decide there are coyotes there. Obviously, you ain't going to kill them if they're not there, you know. If you have a reason to believe that there's coyotes in that vicinity, then if you can get to your stand without the, the predator knowing you're there, that's rule number one, you know. Maintaining your, you know, the direction of your scent. Main, uh, monitoring your scent cone, that's number two, you know. People get really hung up on what sound did you play in there. There is a difference in sounds. I'm not saying they're not, but it's not the overriding factor in whether you call anything. It's a knee-jerk to them, you know. When you can call a coyote off of an 800-pound dead cow to come over to a rabbit sound, I mean, there's no logic in that. I mean, why would you do that, you know? Except he's been taught his whole life, never pass up an easy meal. You know, I don't care if you got one now, you know, go get the easy meal. It's a, it's a knee-jerk to them. So you can, you can teach them, and it's, and it's really not that difficult. They just have to be committed to the details when they go out there. When they drive away from their house or their camp or their lodge or something, you better start thinking about my scent cone, where it's going to, you know. And that, that, those details become more acute, the more pressure that the coyotes have on them. The, the more pressure that they have on them, they've heard every sound. They've heard the door shut. They've seen people walk in. They, they are educated in some sense to where those details have to be maintained even more in an area where other people have called before. Um, so, like, you go down to Mexico, like we were talking earlier, you might not have to pay attention to those details quite as much because they've never seen a human, never heard a call before. So they're like your knee jerk reaction. They're just going to come find out what the heck's going on. But in areas where you get a lot of pressure, those details have to be maintained even further. Uh, there's no question about that. And you brought up, you know, about the guy in Florida, uh, where I live in Louisiana, I'm in the Mississippi Delta, that culture land mostly. You know. There are tons of coyotes. And I used to call there a lot. I don't call there anymore simply because I'm not around to call in the cooler months. And it's too hot in the summertime to call them. But uh, uh, they are they are much harder to call there, and it's just not the lower density of coyotes. It's they're 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 more uh, sensitive to what's going on around them. If you can get out in the middle of a big ranch or a big body of public land or something like that, not any roads around and you know, people haven't called these, you know, the second time you try to call a coyote, you got about 10% of the chance you had the first time you tried to call a coyote. And I don't know if the 10% is correct or not, but it's real low down around zero, you know. Well, people don't call them that much where I'm from. They do call them, but they don't call them that much. And I, so I always, somebody wants me to come coyotes. I say, well, a lot of trucks running around there. Yeah, but they see them trucks every day. They don't pay no attention to them. I say, well, they don't pay no attention to them. But something raises their suspicion just a little bit, and they will not come to the call. Now, I've, I've had it happen to me, and people told me that, you know, we'd be out, say, bush hogging or something like that. Well, it's a target-rich environment for a coyote behind a bush hog because you uncovered mice and bugs and all kinds of things. I've seen them, and it's happened to me. Come out and run along back of your tractor, you know, eating. You go over and try to call that coyote. He won't come to the call. Something about the call, they have to be... They can't be suspicious. If they're suspicious, they're not going to come in, you know. So you you have to get them in an environment where they're not suspicious of you, which gets you back to the rule number one is get into your stand without them knowing you're there. You can't pull up there and slam your car door and walk in downwind, you know. Uh, there's an old saying in the predator business about, well, consider all the environment around you is a pie. 
you don't have the whole pie. You just got a part of the pie. You're going to contaminate part of it, park in your whatever you're driving in. You're going to contaminate part of it by walking in. Your best bet is to uh, contaminate a small amount as you can, I mean park in the same scent uh, cone area that you walk in on and set up on, you know. You save most of the pie, but uh, a predator calling is not not difficult. There's nothing difficult about it. You ain't got to learn a whole lot, but the few rules that you got to learn, you got to stick to them religiously. You can't violate them and do much good. Do you, uh, now that you, you've been in the call business a long time, do you ever hand call or hunt without a mojo? Yeah. And, or use them in conjunction with each other? Well, I more use them in conjunction yeah. with each other. I, I, I have found, and I, I couldn't prove this, it hadn't happened to me enough times. I mean, it hadn't happened positively enough times to prove that. But, you know, like if they just, if you're in a non responsive period, they don't want to respond. I found that if you get on a mouth call and you just get as emotional as you can, I like to liken it to, like when a baby pitches a fit and he gets to where he's screaming and whatever so much he can't get a, he can't get a breath like that. Just get on it like that, and we have we have had success doing that. Now I couldn't tell you, you know, it, how how do you measure whether you would have had success without that or not? But I do believe that you can trigger a response. You know, it's kind of like you throw a bait at a bass. You know, about eight times you throw it out there, he finally hits it. I don't know if you irritate him or whatever happened, but. I like to use, I don't ever go without a mouth call. I got a mouth, I got a few mouth calls and uh, my remote control on my lanyard at all times, you know. And when you say non-response, that, that non-response period, I want both of you to answer this. Um, and I'm just throwing out some things here because I don't get the predator hunt much anymore. I'm just obsessed with mallards. So back in the day, I would sit 20 minutes. And if I didn't see a coyote or have action, I'm up and I'm to the next stand. Is that still hold true? And I want you to back that up with just telling me, both of you, like, how long are you willing, if you know that it's bobcat country and bobcat season's open and you can legally harvest a bobcat at that time, how long would you dedicate or commit to that stand? Go ahead, Terry. Well, uh, bobcats uh, uh, can be slow responders. They can be fast responders, too. They'll just bop right in it sometimes. So they're not what you read all the time where they just going to always sneak in. It's going to take them 45 minutes to sneak in. But if I was just bobcat hunting, I would probably stay on the stand uh, 45 minutes. And uh, uh, if I was uh, in coyote hunting, I'd probably stay there 20 minutes. I usually stay about 15 because I just don't have any patience, you know. So, But if I had patience, I'd stay there. But you got to wait. It depends on your country. If you're in an area like where I live where you don't have that many uh, setups that you can make without going back and getting your truck and driving to another property, then you'd stay longer on one stand. But you hit a point of diminishing returns. Almost Most of the cows we call, we, we kill within under 10 minutes. And um, uh, it just depends on how far they're coming from or if you're having to force a response out of them. And uh, you're not going to be uh, high percentage successful in forcing a response out of them. So if you've got a lot of good country, you know, like y'all hunt around here, I'd call not over 20 minutes. If I wasn't messing with bobcats now, I'd call not over 20 minutes. I'd get up and move to the next one. I think when the day's over, you'd be killing more cows that way. I agree. We do the same exact thing depending on the terrain, like you're saying. If we get to a spot where we've, we have these runs that we know the country very well, and we get to a spot where it's wide open, flat country, we'll stay a little bit longer because they can hear. In Colorado, we've hunted in north of Loveland where we saw a coyote a mile and a half away, and it took him, you know, 25, 30 minutes to get there. And we saw him with mm -hmm. binoculars right away. 
And so they can hear that far in those in that type of open country. Mm-hmm. So we'll stay a little bit longer. In tight, rolly hill country, 15, 20 minutes, you're up and gone. And that's a good thing for kids so they don't get bored. Sure. Um, same thing and with me. <laughs> me too. And I would, I would I'm worse than the kids you got. <laughs> I would say me the too. same thing about that, that most coyotes are in that 10 minutes. So if you kill most of your coyotes <laughs> under that 10 minutes, once – once that seven minute mark, you're like, okay, what's the next stand? What's the next stand? Yeah. And bobcats, 45 minutes, um, especially here in Nevada. But you're talking about the the 20 minute stand. There are some days that that 20 minutes is going to be every stand and they're not going to happen. Even though you know coyotes are in it, you know no one's been in there calling. You know it's untouched. It's kind of like you go fishing and you know there's fish in there. Sometimes you get skunk fishing too. Yeah, that's so, that's actually the example I use. I started to use that a while ago. If I was going to teach you guy from Florida how to hunt, you know, one th- one thing you have to recognize that calling predators is like fishing. Fish is always in the lake, but they're not always biting. That's the way coyotes are. You know, if you call them, unless you unless you triggered them somewhere or other, that means they're on their feet. When they bed down, they ain't gonna jump up out of that bed and run over to your call. They just they just not. And so you gotta you gotta keep on calling. Uh, until you know they're on their feet. Now, we know that, you know, the first hour or two in the morning, they're more than likely on their feet. Last hour or so in the afternoon, they're more than likely on their feet. Not necessarily, you know. I've, I've, uh, uh, one of the best days of calling I've ever had was in the Panhandle of Texas, and I think we called 14 uh, uh, coyotes that day. And, uh, but the wind was supposed to blow the third day. But when we got through that night, we found out the wind was going to blow the second day. And that's probably why we kill so many cows because they know what's coming, sure. you know. So, 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 okay, what are we going to do? we up there on a three-day hunt, and this is our first day. So, uh, I said, well, let's just get up in the morning and see what the wind's doing. It ain't supposed to start blowing until after daylight. We got up the next morning. It's calm. It's beautiful, everything. Let's go coyote hunting. So we, the guy said, okay, we're going to go back over here in some real rough country. You can deal with it a little better when, it's, when the wind's blowing, you know. And he said, there's a lot of bobcats in there, you know. Well, the wind didn't blow to about 10, and we made every setup we could tell. We ain't called nothing. We ain't called nothing. So what does that tell me? It tells me that them cows hunted hard the day before because they knew the storm was coming. They hunted up until sometime in the night. They got them a bed, and they waited out the storm. Barometric pressure. Mm-hmm. The pressure. I mean, that it's it's a lot of guys would say, you know, what's the your favorite day to duck hunt on? It's, you know, guys are like, well, when it's snowing and it's storming, like, oh, I want to hunt before that storm on a bluebird sky when it's windy, when that storm's blowing in, right? Mm-hmm. Because their pressure's dropping. They know they got to get some nutrition and some carbohydrates in them to stay warm and, and to fight that storm that's mm-hmm. coming. And so when predator hunting, um, I assume this too, is that you, you a coyote comes in in five minutes, charging the decoy, 12-gauge, boom, it's a loud noise. You're done, right? You're hu- you're up and you're high-fiving. Is that stand over after fi- after that coyote comes in and he's laying dead at the decoy? It is if you up and high five it. <laughs> but if you're not doing that, which you shouldn't. Now, it, 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 you know, as Clay can tell you, the shot doesn't seem to bother him unless the second coyote it, it was running with the first coyote, and then it is over. But if there's one that's uh, just not running with that coyote, he don't seem to have any appreciation of what that shot does. On that same day in the Texas panel I was telling you about, we set up that morning in a, on a hillside. Uh, this is all uh, pasture land now, uh, 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 Texas panel type pasture land. And uh, called a coyote, and he come up there, and I shot him, he dropped. And then we just kept on calling. And then from a different direction, here come a coyote over the ridge. But he came down and got on the same trail that the first one was on. 
And he started up there, and when he got to that first cow that killed, he just stopped, kind of wheeled around. He was standing there looking at him when I shot him and killed him. When we went out there, both one of them laying on top of the other one. I got that on footage too, by the way. <laughs> I would have said I don't believe you. <laughs> and uh, and so it just don't, you know. You just keep on calling them till you think nothing else is gonna come in. Yeah, you sit and first first thing I do is switch over to Kayai, uh, and let that play for a couple minutes, and then if it, nothing reacts to those first couple minutes, the Kayai right back to distress sound, and keep playing because I don't know if it's true, but as a human, you try to outsmart. You sure. Know, it, and yeah. sometimes it's good, sometimes mm-hmm. it's bad. But as a shotgun sound. Coyotes don't know what a shotgun is. Yeah. They don't know what that sound is. It, yeah. They could hear a car going over a cattle guard. They sure. could hear thunder and lightning. Uh, a lot of different sounds in nature are a lot louder and weird than a shotgun. They don't know mm-hmm. what a shotgun sound is. So just because that goes off, don't get up and hoot yeah. and holler. No. Because our, if there's one, there's probably more coyotes that yeah. are going to react to that sound. There probably is. You know, that we, we probably leave a lot of coyotes behind, but there's not a whole lot we can do about that. You know that you're going to get more responses from downwind than you are going to get from upwind. And we don't ever know what we call from downwind. But mm-hmm. you think about this, the, you know, the first day that coyote pup came out of the den, his mother told him, don't go if you can't smell. So when you ask a coyote to come downwind to your call, you asked him to go against everything his mama told him to do, you know, when he was growing up. Cause, and that's why they circle a lot, you know. 100%. And, um, you know, that's the number one problem that I – that people talk to me about why they can't they can't get them up close enough to shotgun them is cause the uh, coyote circle downwind on it. But you know we don't have much trouble with that. You know we we have trouble with it now. It'll happen to us sometime. But I've I've gone out there and hunted two days and called quite a few coyotes and never had one of them on that. You know something about that decoy once they lock on it they just they just coming. You know but we don't know what happened behind us so we're not factoring that in. You know you call some because yeah. they can hear you better. And they're in the right position back up. Well, know. that's the advantage of a of a of an e caller, right? Or go. I mean, you and Clay can talk about this, but being able to move that caller upwind of you to where the visual and the sound is actually upwind of the gun, to where if you're hand calling, you know that coyote is going to go downwind of you, and he might not necessarily present you with a shot, but you, uh, something that I would teach somebody is the way that you can use that e caller and that decoy mixture to your benefit, especially if you do have a crosswind, you know, I would also teach a crosswind instead of putting the sure. wind at my back, all that yeah. stuff. And, and that's, there's so much that goes in. And I, and I love when hearing, I agree. Predator hunting is not that difficult. You go out, you set your collar down, one rushes in like that Bobcat did to Mike and Buck and you kill him. But a lot of times there is strategy that goes into it. And if you opened up that, that, that sight picture out in front of you that you did not mm-hmm. contaminate and you concentrate on that sight picture, and you really put your skills to work there with your decoying, your hide, your your the way that that coyote can approach you, how you're going to stop. Clay's really good at bark stopping or whistle stopping dogs. There's a lot that goes into the harvest rate. Uh, successful coyote hunters can separate themselves from guys that just can go out and kill a couple a year. There's guys that can call and kill 100 a year, 200 a year because they've honed their skills in just like any other thing that you do. In sure, life. sure. You know, I saw a study the other day. Y'all find this interesting. I don't know how old the study was. I just happened to run on it when I was doing some research. Uh, they tested the three senses of a coyote as to which one was most important to food finding, food gathering, and its sight, smell, and hearing. What do you think the most important one was? I would think smell. Scent. I would have thought smell too, but it's sight. Sight. Really? That's why your decoy works. 
as soon as I read it, I said, well, that's why the decoy yeah. works so good, you know. And uh, I suppose that when they're when they're hunting things at a distance like that, they they can sight before they can smell. Mm-hmm. You know, we we got we got a lot of footage of when a coyote's coming in. You think about this. Well, you blow the mouth call, he call, when you turn turn it on, he just hears a sound. He don't know, you know, anything other than that, other than he identifies that sound with, you know, some type of food for him, you know. So he starts coming towards it, you know. At some point, he sees the decoy. And we got some footage. You can see when the hackles on the back of their neck stood up the second they saw that decoy, you know. They changed they changed uh, complexions at that time. We have the know. same footage where, you know, again, in this country, you, you hunt a lot in different areas as well. But a lot of people ask us questions that hunt in real thick areas, mm-hmm. and this doesn't apply to them. Mm-hmm. You can see a coyote in Nevada mile, two miles away. And like you're saying, they come to the sound and footage as soon as they see that decoy it's another gear mm-hmm. hackles on it and jumping over sagebrush grabbing mm-hmm. that feather out of that decoy we mm-hmm. have a ton of that footage and that's what that decoy makes it so exciting because you don't get that reaction with your just with no decoy and just hand calling you don't get that reaction so it makes it more fulfilling yeah. and more exciting for me it's much harder to call it right up in your lap with a mouth call than it is with an e-caller because of what chad just mentioned a while ago you know they can pinpoint the location that sound's coming from. So if they got you pinpointed, I mean, right down here, then there's a much bigger chance they're going to spot you coming in, you know, especially if you're doing what we're doing and that's out filming, you know. I can get out and hide all I want to, but that cameraman's sticking up over yeah, and, the camera. He can't and hide, And they can know? see you a lot further or a lot sooner than they you see them. Uh, absolutely. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> what What is your – when you talk about predator management, whether it's calling, whether it's government flying – and taking care of coyote issues for landowners, livestock owners, wild game populations, trapping, snaring, all of the different applications that there are in in predator management. Do you personally have an issue with the fur trade? No, I don't have an issue with it. It's been going on since man was created, you know. So uh, I, 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 I hate to see some years ago when the antis made people quit wearing uh, furs, you know, for coats, you know, especially women and and stuff like that. I mean, the human race wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for fur to protect them. You know, well, there's a native Indian of, of y'all's country, you know, that's all they, that's all they had, you know? So, but they're wearing leather shoes and carrying leather purses and leather belts and leather vests and leather, everything else. They just don't have any hair on it. But you know, some poor animal died just so they could wear them leather shoes and talk bad about us shooting animals, you know. And the animals that we hunting had a whole lot better life than that cow had. It was raised in a feedlot and slaughtered for meat and fur, for meat and leather, you know. So, you know, they ain't a lot of logic to their to their thing. It's back to the same thing. They dealing with animals emotionally as one animal at a time. Every animal is a precious life, and you just can't manage herds of animals, you know, flocks of animals, you know, like that. It's just... It's not sound, just not sound thought process. So it's it's one thing to say, I'm going to go and buy a fur coat if you, you know, you live in Manhattan and there's a lot of fur that's sold. And people, I see it all the time to where you it's okay to do certain things. It's okay to eat chicken because they were slaughtered this way. It's okay to do this, but it's not okay if you're a hunter and that you're actually going out. And it's almost like it's a political agenda in a lot of ways that the antis want to just cause strife because they do have a lot of money behind them. 
PETA, for example, has a lot of money to, for attorneys. They have a lot of attorneys that are part mm-hmm. of the organization. But, uh, and I'm, and I'm just going to say it in a, in a simple way is that if you educate yourself on what hunting does and what predator management does and what conservation does and what duck stamps and initiatives and ducks unlimited and Delta and mule deer foundation, RMEF safari club, Dallas safari club, all of these different organizations are for the preservation, the protection, the security, the success of animals, right? Mr. Terry there hunters do, like you said before, we do harvest a few animals a year. Your food plots or your moist soil units, you do get to see ducks come in and a few of them get killed every year. But the millions that you're feeding up and down that flyway, we've said it here before on the podcast, that's what the big picture needs to be because those ducks are thriving off of your efforts, off of your dollar, off of your sweat equity. And that's what I want to get across to the antis is, hey, we're all we're all in it for the sake. You guys say you love animals. You need to sit down and educate yourself on our true love and passion for animals as well. You know, certainly the hunting community, especially more in the past than today, you know, has had abusers. And I'm not talking about the market hunters. I'm talking about the the guys who just go out there and bang up and shoot everything and damage property and all that stuff, give us all a bad name. But, you know, past that, I don't know anybody loves animals any more than than the hunters do. You know, these antis, they can say they love animals. They rarely around wild animals. You know, how do they how do they know whether they like them or not? They're not out interacting with them in any way. You know, the population of the of the planet has come to the point to where we've had to compress life. You know, we've compressed all these people into these big cities, you know. So we have to compress the transportation, you know, to to uh, accommodate them. And we've we've have uh, uh compressed the food supply until the foods are all uh, foods all being raised in artificial things, being fed, you know, hormones and vitamins and all kinds of other things, you know. But it really all goes back to, you know, for the uh, a huge percentage of the time that man has been on Earth, however long that is, you know, people did for a living what we're just doing mostly for sports. You know, we can say that we like to we like to eat them, we like to meet, and we do, you know, and we. We make sure that any anything we kill, if it's edible, it, if we can't use it, if we're somewhere just like y'all are, if we're somewhere else and we're just not in a position to be able to uh, uh, to to handle it, you know, we make sure it goes to someone who can enjoy it, you know. Uh, and so, you know, the, 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 their perspective is just not uh, in accordance with reality, if you ask me. You yeah, know? I think they're all about the agenda and their cause. They're not about the animal. It's Correct. Just, it's yeah. just about being in the limelight or whatever they want to call it just to cause that problem to, to get money from people and, and further their agenda. But we're the actual guys putting money towards the conservation, um, feeding the animals. And you see it, you go back to Africa, it's kind of easy to see that in Africa where you, if you put American dollars in that, there's value to that animal and the population thrives on that. Now you take that money away because we killed a, that lion, now there's hundreds of lion dying because there's too many and they have to call them like you're saying and they're doing the exact opposite of what those people actually are trying to accomplish. You know how many elephants have been illegally poached in Africa in a three, this is, this is about a year or two old statistic now, but when they stopped all that elephant up and over there in the, in the first three years after that they poached, they estimate like 30-something thousand elephant a year for three years, so you're talking about 100,000 elephants got killed, mostly not for the meat, just for the, just for the ivory. It generated no money. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and and hunters, I don't know what the statistic would be, but the hunters, if you'd let them legally sport hunt them animals, them elephants at that time, they wouldn't have killed a small fraction of that amount and generated a huge amount of uh, income. I killed an elephant some years ago on in Zimbabwe on uh, on tribal land next to Wangi National Park. And the trophy, not the cost of the hunt or anything like that, the trophy fee that we paid to the natives that owned that tribal land was 12000 U.S. You know, that's a huge, huge sum of money, plus they got all the meat. It's just, it's a win, 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 you know? Yeah, there's, there's really nothing that you can do to persuade me or say to persuade me that those the, those laws could ever or should be passed. You know what I mean? Like, there, it, to say that you can't go over there and le- legally take an elephant when it benefits the societies, the tribes, the locale of that, the local, the local people of that area, it doesn't make any sense at all. And here, here's, we started this podcast. The reason that I wanted to talk to you is because you have so much experience in the outdoors, in life. And we've been friends for going on, you know, almost 10 years now. And what, what I've learned from you just sitting down today, I think that people will literally like tom said before they're gonna they love this time it's all it's been three hours since we started talking and <laughs> i, I would check into that room <laughs> and 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 you know i want to do it again because you've touched on so many things that you could when you start talking about predator management when you start talking about how to use a mojo when you start talking about conservation and land management and food plots and i want to get into baiting with you you hunt deer in the state of kansas i want to talk to you what's the difference between that and a food plot in iowa why can't you bait other what's the difference in all of that i want to get your opinion and I, I want to do it again. I want to sit down and do it again because the the Mojo brand offers so much to the hunting public, the hunting society, the hunting community. And I think I think that, you know, people are going to love what they hear here. I think the next one we do is going to be in Louisiana. And I wanted to just, I'm not done yet. And here's why I'm not done yet. Because you you've done a really good job of educating me on the vernacular or the jargon or the the speaking environment of louisiana and the cajun country over yonder (laughs) yeah yeah so today you said today you said nevada 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 did he say nevada he said nevada and i wanted to make sure that we correct you it's nevada oh really okay nevada tom is that nevada 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 so I remember that pigeon hunting. I don't know where you you got schooled on that. <laughs> well, I, here what I'm where I'm going with this is that uh, I've been I've been um, afforded the opportunity to come to the the Demon Engineering Terry Demon annual crawfish boil. It happens every year. Um, you know this. It just happened about a, what about a month ago? Not even three weeks ago. Mm, Twenty about the twenty something of April every year. Yeah. About twenty something of April. Pinch the tail and suck the head means what? Pinch the tail and suck the it head. It can mean anything you want it to be. <laughs> but in the case of crawfish, you know, uh, traditionally, most people, if they're not in Louisiana, they just eat the tail meat. And the way you get the tail meat off is you pinch the tail right where it joins the body, and you give it a little twist, and then you've got the, the tail meat in the tail, and then you can pinch the back end of the tail, and the meat will pretty much squirt out if you know what you're doing. You do, but then, you know, there's a lot of good juicy stuff up in the middle of it. So they take that part that they piece the tail off of them, they suck on the hole that they just made in the body, and they suck them. They suck the other parts out. What is it, fat? 
mostly fed. The flavoring, that's the yeah. flavor. Yeah. Do you do it on every one or just like one for every 10? Uh, the years? bigger ones, is the, you know. Of course, if you come to our crawfish bowl, they're all big, you know. So, we and how many pounds was it? They, they were the guy that serves the guy that does your crawfish boil did a certain amount at yours, and then he was also doing the county fair, the local fair there at the time. And I think if I have it right, it was like 6,500 pounds at yours and another 25 or 30,000 pounds at that fair for a total of almost 50,000 pounds of crawfish in a two-day period. Yeah, the year you were there, I think we cooked 6,500 at ours. And then they had a crawfish. He started a crawfish festival uh, over across the river where Phil Robinson lived. And he cooked uh, 50,000 pounds that weekend, (laughs) uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. 50,000 So pounds. when someone says they cooked 100 pounds of crawfish for a year, just like, hey, yeah. They yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did it, you know. <laughs> is, is Tabasco the best hot sauce in the world? And why I ask this is because a lot of people have this ideology in their mind, Mr. Terry, that if it's smaller or it's custom made in somebody's garage, it must be better. If it's not out on the mass market, it must be better. Avery Island, the Little Red Stack, the Baton Rouge, the story of Tabasco is pretty awesome. Um pepper sauce is it the best hot sauce out there you're from louisiana do you is it your go-to well i, I love tabasco for you know certain things and so you know it's a food so it's gonna be a you know everybody's got a personal opinion about it but i'll say this it's the most widely distributed pepper sauce in the face of the globe so does that make it the best seems like it would <laughs> isn't that i mean but most people be like oh no this hot sauce is better because my uncle's friend's cousin made it in the basement down yonder. you know i almost said down yonder but you know what i mean it's like people have that like it can't be the best if it's the biggest well yeah. there's a reason they got that big yeah right is yeah. it the, the quality it has a very distinctive flavor to, uh, tabasco does and you know it's widely sold all over the globe and it's pretty much a staple in a lot of you know in, in a lot of things you know of course, you know, whatever your grandma made was probably the best there ever was, you know. So when we talk about when we talk about the language down there, and, and, I, and I love being around you in the field and, and, and asking you simple little questions, but I've come up with a few more, and I want to go back to our, to our staples of what does yonder mean? Well, over yonder means someplace you're not. Over it's yonder. It's somewhere else. You're over yonder. You're not here. You're over please, yonder. Please use it in a sentence. <laughs> Let's go over yonder. <laughs> so that, okay, so you just point your way like yonder. Where, where did that pigeon y- fall? Y- he fell over yonder. Yonder can be anywhere other than where, <laughs> where you're, you're at. at. Yeah, okay. somewhere you're not, you know. It's not really very defining, you know. And I've heard you say this a couple times a day. When you say y'all, you're talking about the people that are right in front of you or you're talking about everybody in the room or what does y'all mean? Hold on. <laughs> You need to listen to this, you know, okay. because you guys, that's what you say when I picked up from you, you guys, if y'all talking about one or a hundred, it's you. So if I say you, you, I don't know if I'm talking to one or a hundred. Well, if down south where we are, if it's you, it's you. But if there's more than you, it's y'all. <laughs> makes perfect sense, don't it? Huh? I don't know, because like y'all, y'all. Y'all come here like you got ten people standing. That's over everybody. My, everybody come here. Everybody come here. All right. Everybody come. It makes here. perfect sense. Y'all, to y'all you. are so confusing with the way y'all do it. You know? So out here where we live, if if something breaks, we say we're going to go fix it. But down where you live, if you guys are going to a baseball game and the baseball game's not broke, you say we're fixing to go to the ball game. Yeah. What does that mean? You know, I really don't know, but I can tell you this: I spent twenty-one days in Africa one time with. Uh, 
with this PH friend of mine, and of course they're English derivatives, you know, they speak a lot more correctly than we do. And when the last couple of days I was there, he says, and we fixing to go over yonder and do something. Oh my God, y'all done corrupted me. <laughs> it is a cool form of the American dialect and language. Tom, do you know, Tom, do you know what fixing to means? Sounds like cooking or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it has nothing. Well, it could be. You fixed to cook, you know. You're fixing to fix some food. You're about to. We're going to. Yeah. yeah. I remember 1997, maybe. I think 1997, the SHOT Show was in Las Vegas. And I went there to meet Phil Robertson. And I walked in, and we had kind of talked over the phone, and they saw us and they called us the desert duck boys because we there's no way to kill ducks out here in our flooded sagebrush yeah. but i got into the booth that day and jay said and phil i think they said what about it and i what about what uh and that's how they say what's up what's going on and what i about what about it and i i had never heard it before and i felt like a re you know, <laughs> not knowing and uh, that's just another one of your sayings that I thought was pretty cool. So I say that now to people out here, and they're like, huh? What are you hey talking man, about? Hey, man, what about it? You yeah. know, just walk up somewhere and say, hey, man, what about it? It don't mean anything. <laughs> something that does mean something that I want to that I, I want to make sure is that out here we have counties. In Louisiana, you have parishes. Mm-hmm. Is that a county, or is there something that, that separates a parish from a county? It's the same exact thing. We're just, our code is French. We have what they call Napoleonic law in Louisiana. And that's what apparently the French called them back then. So it's just a, it's a political subdivision, very similar to a county. In fact, it's exactly like a county. When I was down, I was down in Bat- Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge, with a buddy Lance, and he and his wife Monica said, "We're gonna, we're we're fixing to pass a good time." And I was like, man, that, like literally, like when you hear something like that, Mister, it makes like zero sense. Like we're getting ready to drive by a party is the way I took it. Yeah. But what they meant by it was we're getting ready to go party. We're getting ready to go have a good time. Pass a good time yeah. doesn't mean you're getting ready to drive by a party. Out here it would mean, oh, we're getting ready to drive by a good time. Like yeah, we're passing yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, that that one that one always stuck, and I have the notes here. And then when we were at, we were at a little Cajun restaurant or a little Louisiana food stop in in by your office, and it was called Voodoo or something. Um, remind me of the name of the place, Mojo's or what was the name of that little tiny restaurant? Didn't even have a sign outside barely. And we went in, and they had their menus printed on the table. And you took me and Morgan for lunch that day after we were filming down at the, the headquarters. Mohawk Lounge. Mohawk Lounge. They've had that same menu for about. 75 years <laughs> the mohawk and, and and morgan or somebody ordered a po' boy yeah. and that lady said how you take it and he said dressed now we don't use that out here like when i go to the sub shop out here they say what do you want on it and you literally have to say pickles olives lettuce da, 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 da. Yeah. out there you say dressed it means everything the regulars yeah everything you know but what sense does that make i mean dress doesn't mean everything Especially in today's society, it's less yeah, and less. Can, in language, if you want to be boring, it ought to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to be entertaining, it ought to provoke thought. I don't know. Tell me how to pronounce laissez les bon temps rouler. Am I, am I close? You're close as I can get it. So. <laughs> That's a Cajun term. That's you know? kind of That's like... French, you know? Now, the last one I'm going to ask you, you about have is... To, you have to accent the pass, so. Pass roulette. Okay. Say it again. Pass roulette. 
Passe Yeah, so you got to accent that passport, you know. Passe You practice on it, you'll get it. <laughs> you know, you can go to the internet now and say, how do you pronounce that? And they'll pronounce it for you, you know. If you practice enough, you'll get it. So you're, the the culture of Monroe is different than Cajun country? Oh, yeah, yeah. See, people think, a lot of people think, mistakenly think, that the Cajun uh, from Louisiana is like a Hoosier from Indiana. But it's not. It's a class of people. It's a group of people, you know. Those people that you ever read the poem, Longfellow, that's a, that's the story of the Cajuns. They they got run out of uh, 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 Acadia, uh, Acadian. What's what's the English country up on the east coast? Uh, New uh, England. Uh, uh, they got they run out of there and they got on the Mississippi River and they ended up down the marshes of Louisiana. You know, so they were they were French Canadians is what they were. You know, and so uh, uh, up until the oil field came to the marshes, some you know, 30, 40 years ago when it was very few of them could speak English. They almost all spoke French, you know. And they teach uh, French in school today. In high school today, it's mandatory in Louisiana, maybe junior high. I don't know, you know. So that that's a that's a French Acadiana people. And, 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 and Acadiana is how they they uh, corrupted that to Cajun, you know. It's Acadiana, Cajun, you know, and then now they call them Cajuns, you know. But they're a different race of people, basically, you know. Mr. Terry, you've done a lot, and I know that the age is a mystery. I don't even ask the age because <laughs> nobody knows how old you are. Nobody cares. It's just if your life was based on – if your induction to that Hall of Fame was based on your experiences, then you obviously deserve to be a first-round ballot you know, inductee. And I, I don't know. I don't know if you could live a fuller life listening to you talk, your life experiences, your travels, the people that you've met, the boards you've served on, the people that you've educated, your – you, you have such a grasp on so many different areas of life. You've mentored me in a lot of ways, and I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you for coming out here and being part of this. Thank you for the partnership, the loyalty to our shows, our brands. And, I mean, when I hear the name Mojo, I think of the product. You hear it a lot in different areas. Mojo meaning magic, the story you told, it was just awesome. But, I mean, anybody that gets a chance to sit down with you and learn the hunting heritage, the laws, the laws of the land and the ethics, the morals, everything that goes into it. You said so much today and it went by so fast. Maybe not for you, but for me, I could sit here for another three hours and learn from you. I just want to say thank you. In a long-winded way, I want to say thank you. Me too, and my boy. <laughs> well, great. I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. But if you want to continue this, you mentioned coming to Louisiana. We're just starting to hunt cottonmouth moxkins. My son started this weekend, you know. So for the next two or three months, we'll uh, we'll shoot cottonmouths. We'll hunt them, shoot cottonmouths day and night, and we will uh, hunt hogs at night. So come on down. We'll do a podcast. You know? Oh, man. And so you're saying, is it legal to hunt cottonmouths in Louisiana? It's illegal not to. <laughs> <laughs> do you need a tag and license? Or you just... <laughs> Nobody ever asked me for one. I don't know, you know. So you if know, I told you right now I had 20 pounds of frozen crawfish, would you want me to boil them right now for you? Uh, that'd be good, yeah. Well, really? they're frozen. Nah, yeah. we don't do that. No. We don't have them. And, uh, All right. You well, know, Phil Robinson once said, I heard him say this, you know, said, if you're from Louisiana and you see something like a critter, that you don't know what it is, your first inclination is to shoot it. <laughs> That's pretty much true. 
not to take a picture of it. Shoot. Mr. Terry, thank you so much. I love you. Thank I love you. Mojo. I can't wait to get back down to Louisiana. This is Chad Belding for Clay Belding, Mr. Terry Demon with Mojo Outdoors. This has been another awesome episode, in my opinion, my humble opinion, of This Life Ain't For Everybody. Mr. Terry has lived that life. Tom, go ahead and play us out with a little Leith Lofton. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Thank you, Mr. Terry. What you gonna do when the money's all gone?